Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait What? Comics Podcast for the Savage Critics website. Graham McMillan and I do upbeat about as well as a hungry T-Rex can do subtle, but we try our best in our 120th episode. In two hours and 15 minutes, we discuss the passing of Carmen Infantino, Stormwatch by Jim Starlin, Zombo by Al Ewan and Henry Flint, The She-Hulk Diaries by Marta Acosta, The Tribulations of Giant Man, Mad Men Season 5, Agent Gates, Ross Andrew and Mike Esposito, and much, much more. Full, although somewhat maybe still skimpy show notes, are available over at SavageCritic.com. And, as always, we hope you enjoy, and thanks for listening. Jeff! Jeff Lester! Jeff! So, listeners, Jeff and I, after the comments for the last podcast, went back and forth about, like, we should we should do an upbeat podcast. Like, we should. Not necessarily in the we have to do everything that the commenters say, but we were both like, that'd be really interesting. Like, we really do get hung up on things we don't like all the time. We should do an upbeat podcast. That would be really fun. Yes. And then, Jeff, have you just seen the news? Uh, About Roger Ebert? About Carmine Infantino. No, I missed it. What the fuck is that? Carmine Infantino has also just died. Holy shit. No kidding. Yes. And that's just... Here's the thing. Roger Ebert... Uh, because I'm not American, mm-hmm. I like I know about in the abstract as much as I grew up with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But Carmen Infantino really, I, I really am like, oh shit! Yeah, that's huge. Carmen Infantino, like he was, he was the guy. He was, he's one of those artists that I, I maybe this is like me and not other people, but I think other people do go through this as well. There's artists that like you kind of don't really like as a kid because they're so stylized. Yeah. And then you later on you're like they're great. Like why, why did I think you know why did I think John Byrne was better than this guy? Um, and like Kirby was one of those for me. Don Heck was one of those for me. Yeah. Um, but so was Carmen Infantino. Mm-hmm. Carmen Infantino had like was so sharp mm-hmm. and so like weirdly pointy that I remember as a kid I was like what is this? <laughs> <laughs> what what's going on? But like now I'm just like like if you think of the if I think of the Flash I think of Infantino mm-hmm. and I think of not just his depiction of super speed right but like just his his body language mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. and. The whole thing, like he defines the Flash for me, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and also he defines early Star Wars comics for me. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, in fact, I I was looking at the the second Star Wars omnibus, the first and second actually, uh, recently, and really struck by because Infantino's one of those dudes. In a way, I liked his early Silver Age stuff because it's very clean. But I was born, you know, we were both younger than that so that like when I saw his work it was in his like the late 70s early 80s period where he's doing he goes back to the Flash and he's doing Star Wars and it's all like you said super super angular and stylized and um, so busy that as a kid I didn't like it and revisiting it I'm just like ah it's 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 just stunning and it's also it's it's really great but it is one of those things that you don't appreciate as a kid mm-hmm. he's also somebody that I wish had gotten because um, his his inkers sort of seem to like it's rare that he seemed to get the kind of inkers that would really draw some of his work out you mm-hmm. know like and I think that's really clear in his later first run of the flash if that makes sense mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh because he started getting like Sid green and everyone mm-hmm 
you know, and they really, they really took a lot out of his work. When you look at the um, elongated man stuff he was doing at the same time, mm-hmm. and that he was inking himself, mm-hmm. it looks amazing. Right. And then, then you cut to like you know Sid Green or or, or Joe Gale or, or someone like that who's 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 doing his work on Flash, mm-hmm. and it really is like. Um, Weirdly, like it's like Murphy Anderson stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's something like weirdly pretty, mm-hmm. but that softens the dynamism mm-hmm. a lot. Really, like removes a lot of the impact of the art. Yeah, yeah. Like they're trying to sort of like make it more mainstream or make it prettier. Or yeah, something. or almost try and rewind it to an earlier period of his work that he's clearly moved beyond, and it and it doesn't do him any favors. Whereas some of the stuff in Star Wars, like once every like five or six issues, you'll see an issue where he's inked by Gene Day and they do some amazing stuff together. Like Yes, yes. And then, you know, he'll get inked by Terry Austin and they don't. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, is amazing because I sort of think of Austin as kind of a the all star inker kind of. Like he just Oh really? Of... I I yeah, I totally disagree. <laughs> Well, no, I see your point because I – how do I put it? I grew up thinking that way because I really liked his sort of the level of, you know, the the way he would sort of embellish the, the – he had a good way at drawing the blacks out of a work. So he was really great in that sense with someone like John Byrne where he actually kind of yeah. helped give his work. I, I find kinda... Austin uh... – very much like Kevin Nolan, but like the evil Kevin Nolan. In that Kevin Nolan overpowers every artist he works with. Mm. Like, no matter who it is, it mm. ends up looking like a Kevin Nolan comic. Right, right. Uh, and Terry Austin's the same. Yeah. But Terry Austin's ticks are far less appealing to me mm. uh, than Nolan's. And so, while everything Terry no- that Terry Austin inks looks like a Terry Austin comic, right. I don't find that look appealing. And I, th- I think the only time I really did was when he was doing with Burn on X Men. Yeah, Burn on X Men is great, but I think I want to say I'm going out on a limb here. I want to say that Austin works really well with any of the pencilers that kind of came from sort of the post Neil Adams universe. You know what I mean? Like because of Adams' way of sort of you know judicious blacking to kind of add a a sort of sensual tone to things like austin's super good at that so he draws it out really well out of burn he draws it really well out of cockrum um and i i don't know i would assume that he could have actually done quite well with somebody like grell or something i don't know if he actually ever did it but but i can see where there are other artists where if you're not going that way kind of it's sort of it's sort of like joe sinnott like joe sinnott can do can just do an amazing job of making anyone look like Kirby and Sinnott, you know. But yeah. he can. But when you've got someone who's coming from a very different aesthetic, it's like a it's like a big mistake. You have now out of nowhere got me really wishing that we could have Bill Sinkevich and Joe Sinnott team up. Oh my god, that actually <laughs> would be great. That would be awesome. And what I want to see is them flip pages. So, yeah. like, page one, it's Sinkevich penciling, Sinnott inking. Page two, it's Sinnott penciling, Sinkevich inking. <laughs> has, I just keep flipping back and forth. Has Sinnott actually ever um, penciled stuff? Like, I've only I ever seen him want, do ink work. I want to say I've seen him pencil, like, commissions. Hmm. I don't know if he's ever penciled an actual comic book. Yeah, I've, def- we'll see, that's I've definitely it. seen him do full art and commissions. Yeah, that I can see. But I, I sort of wonder if he just has n- either no love or no talent for panel to panel storytelling because you would think considering how much he was sort of used to 
prop up the post Kirby Marvel universe in the seventies, like that he would have, they would have been like, well, yeah. Can, could you just draw this? Yeah. yeah, exactly. So it, it may not have worked out. Um, which would be I don't know. I don't know. I, I just, I, for some reason, this, just the idea of the two of them switching back and forth entertains me greatly. It would be great. Well, actually the thing that's great is I, I think it would be hilarious to have like a comic uh, what I thought you were going with, a comic that's drawn by just one artist, but then every other page is inked by Sinkevich or Sinnott, you know, because I can see... <laughs> oh my god, that would be great. And then Kevin so, Nolan on the third page, and then it would so, just be like... Something that... Uh, and we're getting completely off the Carmen Infantino <laughs> right now, but we're off on a tangent, people, sorry. Um, something that was really interesting for me was in the Before Watchmen book, mm-hmm. uh, Sinkevich took over from Joe Kubert as an inker. Mm. Uh, when... Because Cooper obviously passed away, mm-hmm. uh, but it happened mid, not only mid issue but mid scene. Wow, um, and it's really interesting to compare the before and after pages, mm. um, because Cooper uh, again had a very distinctive inking style. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and Sinkevich tries to ape it first mm-hmm. of all, mm-hmm. which is really interesting, because you get Sinkevich trying to make it a fairly seamless. Mm-hmm. Transition and to be honest, kind of failing. Yeah, uh, but it's really interesting to see him try. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of interesting because when you mentioned it, I'm like, oh, you know, that's actually not a bad. Yeah, I I could see that. Yeah, you know, it's like it's so crazy, it just might work. You know. Yeah, totally. And he 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 tries his best, and it's not like uh, you're you're not immediately holy shit, what just happened <laughs> between this bit, you know, that page and this page. Mm-hmm. But there's definitely a, oh, this is Sienkiewicz's first page. Right. Right. Wow. Which, which uh, before Watchmen book was that on? Was that Night Owl? Or? Night Owl, yeah. Oh, that okay. was Night Owl. Interesting. I want to say it's the third issue. Huh. It, it's uh, it's the one that threw, like, their... Because they were doing really well with, like, a book a week. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, they weren't. Mm-hmm. And it, that, that was the one that threw it all out of... Because, obviously... Like uh, Andy Kubert, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Adam's the one at Marvel. Uh, Andy uh, took time off mm. because it had to tie it as well, uh, and it's just, that's the same reason the AVX got off schedule at the end as well. Oh, interesting. Because I and Adam, because I remember people online were like, "You were doing so well every two, like two issues every month, and now all of a sudden I have to wait a month for the final issue." <laughs> I, I remember Tom Brevert being like, "His dad died," <laughs> which which really was one of those like you know. Everyone needs to get perspective. Sure. You know, I mean, really, you have to wait not, you know, four weeks instead of two weeks for a comic. You'll be fine. Right. Right. Yeah. <sighs> anyway, Carmine Infantino. Uh, it's really sad. Yes, it is actually really sad. Uh, it's funny because I kind of felt like... Um, you know, because uh, I heard about Roger Ebert, I'm like, oh, man, we're going to have to sort of mention this on the podcast, uh, even though just in this weird way of like you and I being people who talk basically who talk critically about stuff, you know, and doing it in pairs. That really is sort of a very strange Siskel and Ebert kind of pioneered that field, I guess. And See, the fascinating thing for me is, like, I've never seen those shows. Right, right. Well, and the thing is, is I saw a ton of them, and I can't, I'm not really sure I want to say, even say they were much of an influence, you know, because I sort of, like, I feel like it has to be acknowledged sort of in that format, but... But it's one of those things that might be an influence just because it was done. Do you know right. what I mean? Like they they created uh, an audience for that format for the idea of uh, criticism as dialogue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, exactly. Criticism is dialogue. Um, but, you know, and it, and I've, I've, I've flopped over the years in terms of, I think when I was growing up, I watched them a lot, and I thought that I, I vacillated. Like, I seemed to think that Siskel was the one that I was like, oh, yeah, he's, like, really sort of the smart one. And then at a certain point, I was like, oh, no, no, he's an, he, you know, he's an idiot. Ebert at least seems to have a better sense of... Um, Siskel was seemed a lot more uh, snobby, and Ebert was a lot more seemed to, for a while there, be a lot better about finding, you know, the miracle, the the diamond in the yeah. rough, or being aware of well, ju- judging a work by what its intentions were, rather. Which than, you know is makes sense from the guy who wrote Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which right. <laughs> I think I've said before in this podcast is one of my favorite films in wow. in all seriousness. Yeah, yeah, because uh, it, it's great. It's it's. It's great for what it is. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I can totally see that he would come away from that as a, I don't care if you're schlock, you just have to be good schlock. Right. Right. Attitude. And I think I think he was very good at that for a while. I think, of course, um, toward the end, I thought he had grown into sort of a remarkable fuddy-duddy and, and was impressive. Well, you know, I, I, I think that comes... Yeah. I can, I can think of exactly one person that that didn't happen to. Um, and interestingly enough, it's the person that when I was looking at Twitter and seeing everyone talking about Ebert was the person it was reminding me of, which is John Peel. Mm. And John Peel, again, is like a very, like, it's a cultural reference that Americans won't really get. Mm-hmm. But John Peel in Britain will always be, for me, the guy who never grew old. Mm. The guy who was always willing to accept something as new, never willing to just dismiss it out of hand. Right. Never. Right. And could find the good in anything. Mm. Even if the good is like, this is unlistenable to me, but somebody likes it. Right. Like, he always found the good in something, which I thought was amazing and so admirable. Well, and I and that is, I, I think that's kind of interesting, is, is I feel like that is as much of what we responded to in people's comments. I mean, independently of one another, so I'm, you know, running the risk of putting tons of words in your mouth. But... You know, in that sense, I am, I, you know, I'm okay being the hater for the most part. But generally, I do want to be the guy who who looks for the good and tries to find it. You know what I mean? As opposed to dismissing, uh, dismissing out of hand is, I think, the uh, occupational hazard of critics, either professional or amateur. I, I think it's very easy to dismiss something out of hand. And I think the both of us have been incredibly guilty of it at times. Yes, yeah. Um, and at times for the utterly the wrong reasons, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like we just don't want to engage with it at that point, so we'll make a cheap joke and get out of it. <laughs> I, 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 I know that I have been guilty of that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, on this podcast and elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree. I, I think there's there's definitely something to aspire to in the find the in the. This isn't for me, but I'm sure someone likes it somewhere, and that's okay level. Right. But at the same time, I have such a problem with the idea that you should only be positive. Well, I think agreed. if something is terrible, I think right. you have to call it out as terrible. Well, yeah, yeah, I think so too. And I think there are ways in which, I don't know. And, and, and in that regard, I feel like stuff that you're, a, for me anyway, stuff that I was a fan of or people that I that I considered myself an appreciator of their work, if their work starts moving to an area where I'm like, uh, this is not a good 
point. <laughs> I tend I tend to grow a little bit shrill and pedantic. Like I definitely know or feel that part of what drives me crazy about Brian Bendis's current work is that I used to be a pretty big fan of his earlier work, you know, and so I definitely find myself going, "Oh God, no!" Um, but you know, but there's also I guess there's also sometimes. Um, Again, that worry about being pedantic is, is like for me sometimes there's uh you're working so hard to redress what you see as a, a more problematic trend or something like that that you attack it perhaps overly much in the specific you know what what I found really interesting about that comment thread is someone said something along the lines of we know you're not going to like h Voltron <laughs> and, and <laughs> Here's the thing, I didn't. Yeah, no, I like, agree. I suspected it, mm-hmm. but I wanted to be. I wanted to be wrong. Like mm-hmm. I wanted to like it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and but the, the, the I just not even the flip side. Something that's related to that is, I really disliked the first two issues, mm-hmm. and I haven't read an issue since. Mm. And that's new for me. Mm-hmm. Does that makes sense. Like I read all of Fear itself. I mm-hmm. read all of Civil War. Right. And part of it was a sense of responsibility. Like, I am part of, you know, the comics conversation online. I should read these things. Right. Um, but also part of it was, I don't know if it's masochism, but a sense of like, I want to see how bad this gets. Well, yeah. Um, with, with Age of Ultron, I, did, I, like, I, I got to the point where I was like, I have disliked these first two issues so much and mm-hmm. found so little value in them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that I don't. Like, I don't even see value in continuing to read them. Well, I don't know. I think for me, I think there is... Um... Like, I might revisit when the new artists come on. Right. Yeah. But I know from the first two issues that the Brian-Brian combination... Well, see, that's what I find interesting, is what, to what's, me, what's... Uh, is that there is something to be said. Like, the Brian-Brian combination... Like, I didn't realize walking into it. Like, I was kind of like, eh, you know, it's Hitch. I'm really, I can't imagine how I'm going to like it. I don't like Bendis events. But the thing that's kind of interesting is, to me, is that idea of, like, reading those first two issues of The Age of Ultron and being like, oh, those two guys actually bring out... The worst in each other. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. What I consider the worst in each. So, um, although, fascinatingly enough, I, I have to say, like, I, um... Uh, I I picked uh, uh, you know under under the concept of I am apparently carrying on the world's worst boycott I went and checked out uh, the books that Marvel had for free on their app I think because someone in some comics thread had mentioned that there was some good stuff on there and I picked up the first two issues of the Guardians of the Galaxy Infinite comics if oh you... yeah I've read those too yeah so. I only read the first one, which was the Drax issue, and it was pretty funny because I started reading it, and I had no idea who was writing it. I just figured it would be essentially some nobody, you know. <laughs> Joke you fell in. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And partway through, I was like, oh, holy shit, this is Bendis. And I'll be <laughs> honest, I don't think the Infinite Comics format is going to do Bendis any favors either. Like, interestingly well, enough... You, you yes. should really check out the second in that case. Yeah, do you think that I'm wrong, or do you think that the, I the, I think that the second is the most Bendis-y Infinite comic you can imagine, Oof. um, in both good and bad ways. I mm-hmm. think that the people who really enjoy Bendis's uh, chattiness, shall we say, mm-hmm. 
will get a lot out of it. Yeah, but they... I think I think that if you don't, mm-hmm. you'll it'll be exhibit A in your case of this is why Bendis sucks because it is if Infinite Comics is Marvel's attempt to uh, do something with digital comics that adds a small amount of element of animation in there. Mm-hmm. The animation is literally while Rocket Raccoon is giving a monologue. Mm-hmm. He is moving his beer from hand to hand. Right, right. Um, you know, and the balloons change. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's it's one of those. If this is a thing that you like, you will like this thing. Right, right. Comics, uh, but I think again, I think there, there, I think there's an audience for that. I think that Bendis has successfully either built or cultivated an audience for him being chatty and sticky mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that audience will love that comic interesting well it, you know in, in a weird way I think it's a better comic than the first because the Drax one I think is just uh, just really oddly paced and mm-hmm. doesn't really accomplish anything well I think that's I think that was what really struck me is is that the first issue is it's Drax he's in a place then a fight breaks out and then there's stuff happening and it's very how do I put it? Like it's the opposite of what I would have expected. Like if you'd asked me to describe what a Bendis Infinite comic was gonna look like, I would have imagined it would have been more like what you're saying issue two sounds like. But there was just something about the pacing in issue one, even with the infinite stuff, that I was like, Oh shit. Like I don't know how to put it. Like there's a way in which I feel like Bendis's work needs to read faster. Like taking something like the Infinite comic that basically slows down the pacing, like gives you a certain amount of push button kind of control over it, I guess. Mm-hmm. Or or even Hitch's work where the eye is supposed to kind of drag, you know, kind of be caught by the amount of detail in the landscapes or whatever. Um those things serve Bendis poorly. I whereas I do think that it makes sense to me that that sort of the more simplified style that uh, Mike Evan Emming was doing in Powers or is doing in Powers. Uh But he he also illustrated the Drax comics, didn't he? Uh yeah, I think he did. I think yeah. he did. And that's the thing that sort of struck me is is that it wasn't the art, it was the infinite comic pacing. Like if I'd yes. been reading I, it as a regular comic, I think it might have actually moved enough. You know. I, I think the same is true of the Rocket Raccoon issue as well. Mm. I, I think there's a real problem with uh, Infinite Comics as a format for Bendis because Bendis's comics are so text-heavy mm-hmm. that uh, it takes up more real estate on the screen in a way that it wouldn't on the page. Mm, interesting, yeah. And so I, I think what would be maybe two pages mm-hmm. of a comic takes up like six or seven screens of an infinite comic yeah and so you really have a sense of holy shit he's still talking yeah exactly exactly so i do think that it'll be interesting so i ironically enough here we are talking about a thing that we don't like and yet i really do feel like being able to look at that work and i looked at it i swear utterly blind was is a case of like hopefully you can get to the point where you where you can realize what's not working for you about a creator or about a work. Um, and of course, whereas some people might say like, well, yeah, but you realize that 30 or 40 episodes ago, which I think is certainly true uh, in some ways, uh, is that 
you know, you start thinking about like, okay, well, like, because I swear the motion comic was the first time I'm like, okay, I actually feel like there's a solution here. And the solution is, is that Bendis actually needs like a speedier artist. Some He needs somebody like, you know, like it'd be weird to see, but you know, again, like Mike Haven Emming or, you know, I don't know, Faith Aaron Hicks, you know, someone like early Brian Lee O'Malley, like stuff, stuff that has I'd, a lot I'd of lo- velocity I'd love on to its see, own. No, I'd love to see Brendan Graham or someone similar like that, mm-hmm. because I'd like to see someone whose visual uh, is packed with information, if not necessarily packed with lines, if that makes sense. If you can mm-hmm. tell the difference between, like, this guy has obviously worked very hard on this page, look at the amount of lines, right. as opposed to, this person has worked very hard on this page, look at the amount of information and gags and right. and content there. I'd like to see someone with a lot of content in their art mm-hmm. go up against uh, Bendis. Interesting. What I'd be afraid of Mm-hmm. is that it would cause the story to slow down because Ben just wants to show the art off more, but he also doesn't want to sacrifice his dialogue, so everything just takes longer. Yeah. Which I think is what has actually happened with Age of Ultron. Exactly, exactly. That's where I think that, that unfortunately, even when you get someone that's, sim- that's got a lot of simplicity and elegance and speed to it, um, if there's a lot of information in it, you're already getting, it's, it's bottlenecking you know so i don't know that's that's certainly my my theory about the bendis stuff and kind of a weird take on it um wow i i keep i'm like where how did we get onto the bendis we got here stuff? because we got here because uh someone says we know you're not good like it age oh, of right age of Ultron, neither, right. neither of us genuinely knew that yeah like i uh and i said this thing uh to someone earlier on today about an entirely different subject but I think it's also true in terms of comics. I am, I think, in many cases, far too optimistic mm-hmm. and think that I will like things, or I don't even think, hope that I will like things. Right, right. That, um, that I end up not. And mm-hmm. that, you know, if I was entirely rational, I would be like, what are the odds of me liking this? Yeah. Well, I think but that's I, that's that's part I'm of our formula, too. right? You know, like you're the optimist and I'm the crushed optimist. <laughs> What a great formula. They fight crime. <laughs> um, I, maybe, I don't know. I, uh, yeah, I, I, I just, I can totally see why someone would say, of course you're not going to like it. Mm-hmm. But I can honestly say, I did not go into it expect, I definitely didn't go into it expecting to dislike it as much as I did. Right. Uh, but also, I don't really think I went into it wanting to dislike it. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think ultimately although it seems very easy uh to see um that I guess people I, I mean and there are there are times I do think that there is a certain amount of bad faith on my part like after reading that first stage of Age of Ultron I was like oh man I kind of want to read the rest of it cuz I did want to see what how much of a shit show it became, you know. And honestly I just read issue 3 um a few minutes before I got on the line to talk with you, basically while the computer was doing its... its You're already stuff. an issue behind, Jeff. Issue 4 came out yesterday. I know. Well, and someone sent me issue 3 last week, and I literally had no interest in reading it. I was kind of like, ah, but I... But I, maybe I do. So I read it, and I was like, yeah, I don't know. You know, again, I'm sort of like, I kind of want to read 4, but I kind of don't. <laughs> I would certainly... Let's put it this way. there For people who think that... Um, I do and will continue to basically um, 
I guess enjoy the charity of others. Well, enjoy the charity of others, but but that is interesting in the way that it sort of affects my work, my reviews, because there is a way in which I kind of think like, oh yeah, like each of like if I had paid like three ninety nine or even you know with the discount that I get from Comics what, Experience what? for Age of Ultron, I would be seriously pissed. You know? That's that's just it. When you read something for free, you are totally kinder to it than if you paid money. Yeah, you're kinder when, to when it. When you pay yeah, money, absolutely. you really have a sense of motherfucker. That was a four dollar comic. Yeah, that was a four dollar comic that I cut through in two minutes. Yeah, exactly. And that is the sort of thing that you're far less likely to come back to. But you know, if like if someone's giving me copies of you know their digital copies of Age of Ultron. Yeah, I'll probably read it, even if it's a shit show, because it's, you know, God bless, it's a shit show that other people have underwritten for me. But, you know, I wouldn't bother. In the past, I have jumped off of big events like Civil War, just because I was like, no, there's no way I want to follow through on this. I don't, I'm well, like, the, where is it going? That's the thing, like, I, I actually realized, uh, I think when issue three of H.O. Ultron came out, um, I was like, well, if I could read this for free, I'd read it. Mm -hmm. but, I, but I'm not going to pay for it. Right. Well, and again, uh, it was the it was the sense of, you know, I I feel some responsibility to continue reading this because mm -hmm. I know this is going to impact the larger comics conversation that I I, I am actually paid. Well, see, that's it. Yeah, you really to, are uh, in that in to the middle of that. It. Mm -hmm. But there was also the sense of I am not willing to pay four dollars for something that I will not enjoy. And and at this point, I feel really confident in saying I will not enjoy it based on two issues. Right. And two issues that I vehemently disliked. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, for that, I you know, I, like I said, I'll probably come back on in issue six when they change the artists mm -hmm. to see whether it's a different book. Because someone said this to me on Twitter yesterday, whether they thought, whether I thought that um, Age of Ultron, like the first five issues are like, two years old and then they came along and did an entirely new back half mm. and I, I think that's the case and that's another reason why I'll come back in issue 6 right. to see whether basically it got better because Brian Bendis had had a holiday <laughs> you know I the thing that's funny about issue 3 for me is because what happens is they launch the plot that Captain America has come up with um, and but then they cut away to show more heroes in another part of, I think it might even be New York, but basically... It, no, it's uh, Chicago. Oh, thank you. Right, Chicago, where it's uh, Taskmaster, Black Panther, and uh, Red Hulk. And I kind of had this weird... Well, there was two factors. One is kind of the, like... Like, I would like... There's a way in which, like, a reoccurring... Basically, if you did, like, a Walking Dead version of the Marvel Universe where you show it falling and sort of collapsing, like, as an ongoing, I would actually be kind of interested in that. Like, even... It, it flies in the face of what they would do, I think, in the sense of they want a book that, you know, matters to the Marvel Universe, and just by the nature of what I'm talking about, it would be impossible to do that. But I kind of had this weird thing of like, I'm like, oh, I like the idea of Black Panther and Taskmaster on a roof trying to pull off an impossible mission. You know, it seems, it got resolved so badly that I was actually annoyed. And also realizing that um, as much as I had begged and prayed for Bendis to stop dragging out the beginnings of his mega epics like 
Age of Ultron really by starting in the, oh, everything fell apart because, you know, one night and then uh, stuff really just feels so cheap. You know, it to me, it's really like issue what three I think, was kind what of What I like, think is weirdly cheap mm-hmm. is it's obviously going to get retconned. Right. Like, that's that's the thing. I mm-hmm. think they overplayed their hand. Mm-hmm. I think when you're killing off the Fantastic Four and mm-hmm. She-Hulk, mm-hmm. there is no way that's not going to get retconned. Sure, sure. No, like, absolutely. Everyone reading it knows it. Mm-hmm. And I really think that does breed maybe not contempt, but boredom in the audience. Well, because they're <laughs> like, you know, maybe something's going to, you know, maybe there's going to be a crossover in this, but really, ultimately, you know, this isn't going to stick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so when you have uh, Brevoort or whoever doing all these interviews that are essentially, no, this is this is the real Marvel Universe. It's happening now. This is going to impact everything. Right. But Thor's dead. Mm-hmm. You're like, what? Mm-hmm. No, you're 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 just lying to me. Right. Well, uh, yeah, I think, and I think that is the uh, the other problem, and it's kind of amusing that it sort of brings out the other end of what people were mentioning in the comments, sort of our naive cynicism, is uh, there is a certain amount of reluctance for me to be kind of um, like, oh, well, of course, Marvel, that's just what they do. You know what I mean? Like, and I'm like, but I don't, I don't understand. I feel like, I feel like the people who like Age of Ultron um, sometimes feel like they're actually working far harder to justify liking it like they have to jump through a lot more hoops than I feel like I am in my cynicism I guess you know because I really do feel like well I'm going to walk into this with an open mind despite the fact that everything that is tacked on behind the scenes uh, unfortunately which, I don't know, maybe that's the other part of the I, I problem. Have, I have a real problem with the concept of naive cynicism. Naive cynicism? Well, I sort of see it. I sort of I, see I don't, it. I just, I just feel that as a complaint, part mm-hmm. of me is like, pick a side. <laughs> <laughs> is it naive or is it cynicism? No, I, I get it. I sort of get it. I just kind of don't feel... Like, I'm willing to go... the concede the fact that there's various areas where we're absolutely uninformed. I'm also fascinated by the ways in which, like, for example, you've brought up stuff like DC's kind of last week, or two weeks ago, I guess, when we spoke, and it was like, hey, DC is... This is just a flash in the pan, their period of being decent. Like, you, I think you've come up with some very impressively cynical ideas without a lot of naivete attached to them as as well. Um, <laughs> I, you know? I... I think you're making me more cynical, Jeff. Really? Am I? I think you're, I think I become more cynical the more I do this podcast. <laughs> and so I'm blaming it on you. <laughs> well, that is uh, that is terrible I, news. I, I, but here's here's the thing. I hate I hate the cynicism. I hate I hate when I become that cynical. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hate the. This is Marvel, of course, they're going to do this. I, I hate levels yeah. like that because part of me is like, that's so wrong. Mm-hmm. That's literally just holding up your hands and just being like, well, fuck having a higher standard. Right. Yeah, agreed. Agreed. Um, and, I, and I do it all the time. Mm-hmm. 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 You know, and I hate it when I do it. Yeah. Um, I really, really genuinely do. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. And I, I empathize because uh, I, I, that is. 
I don't know. I think that that is the problem. Like, admittedly, I think there's sort of, uh, I can see where it just gets tedious because there's that level of like, because we continue participating in reading the books of the big two or, um, you know, studying what's happening behind the scenes, you know, there is a certain level of like, how do I put it? Like, I can see why people are frustrated because it sounds like it's never going to change. But the fact is sometimes these things do change and they do change because people actually sort of continue to vent or that people know that there is at least some sort of alternative, even if that alternative ends up being somebody who ends up reading most of Marvel's comics because people send them to it, you know. But I don't know. I just feel like there is... uh, yeah, it, it, it maybe maybe the focus on our focus on the positives or uh, reviewing weird stuff that we like um, will kind of help sort of strike a better balance in some ways moving forward. But I definitely think that continuing to say, you know, look at things that are fucked in the industry and actually saying that they're fucked and actually being upset about them is is uh, is a good thing. You know? I, I think it's a valid thing, at yeah. least. Yeah, a valid thing. I think that's also a good way to put it. Um, so. in, in that case, I have I have three things I really want to talk about this week. Oh, good. Okay. One, actually two are great. Okay. One is expectedly great. The second is really genuinely surprisingly great. And the third is appalling. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. That seems like a good little... Okay. Which would you like first? Um, let's go with the expectedly great. Uh, Zombo in 2018. Oh, yeah. I, I have been saying this to you for a couple of weeks, right? You Have you read the second episode of Zombo yet? Yes, yeah, and I thought it was absolutely brilliant. The, it really is, right? I mean, yeah. it's just the first two pages of that, all the Beatles jokes, mm-hmm. and we're, it's such a perfect comic to me. I can't tell you how happy mm-hmm. the first two pages of that comic made me. Yes, it's just so good. It's so well constructed. It's so smart. Mm-hmm. It's so funny. I mean, it's just brutally funny. Oh yeah, yeah. It absolutely is. Absolutely uh, Henry is. Flint's art is fucking spot on. Mm-hmm. And there's all this stuff that doesn't doesn't make sense, mm-hmm. but somehow that works in its favor. Mm-hmm. Why are they blue? <laughs> you know, I mean, really, genuinely, why are they blue? Right. You mean like, for the course of the story or thematically? Or, or you know, artistic? Well, well, what artistic choice both, did they have for that? Oh, I see. Both, I guess. Mm-hmm. Like, because you... So, for people who don't know, uh, and there's probably a lot of you, because despite Jeff and I always talking about 2080, chances are you are not reading 2080. Right. Um, and not for any real reason other than it's not the easiest comic to get. And if you don't like digital comics... You're kind of screwed in America. Yeah, in America, it's really hard to come up with an option. In fact, I think um, Hibs, you know, just got last week the four pack or whatever it is that was last month's 2080 comics, and I was just like, oh man, like that's it's kind of a brutal wait. You know, I was like, oh, the great part is, is there's some good comics in there to recommend. But even then, like just being able to get them all in a pack a month late, it's, it's, it's a terrible situation, but it is yeah. a great book. It is absolutely one of my current comic reading joys. 
is... I mean, I, and right now, if you're getting it digitally, or if you're in the UK and you can get it in the stores uh, on when it comes out, it's as good as it's been in the longest time. Mm-hmm. It is spectacularly good, and a large part of that is because Zombo is back. Zombo, this is the fourth series of Zombo, which is uh, by Ali Ewing and Henry Flint, and the setup is... It has gone from on an alien planet, there is an undead killing machine who likes to eat people. To, they're back in Brit- they're back in on Earth. Um, Earth is about to be destroyed by a sentient planet that's heading towards it, and so the president, who is a virtual president, and talks like Jack Kirby's nineteen seventies characters. Yes, uh, which is still one of my favorite things in the world. Yeah, um, has decided the way to beat this is to. Uh, bring the world's greatest pop group back together, who are essentially the Beatles, except here they're called the Scarabs. Also, they are blue coneheads. Yes. With, with uh, like, icons on their foreheads. Right. And they're called Jim Lemon, Sir Tim McTimothy, Harold Krishna, and the other one, the one with the weird face. <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's spectacular. It's so... So funny. Uh, Dateline, the past. Youth was vibrant and stabby, and we all still had real hair. Four groovy lads from Earth captured the mood of a generation with the breakout hits. I want to fumble clumsily at your genitals. <laughs> it's so it's so great. But like, why are like why are they blue? You because you I look at it and I see Brendan McCarthy. Mm. Like I look at the characters and I I'm like it's like Henry Flint is totally channeling McCarthy mm. with these characters. Mm-hmm. But it's never explained. Well, there, there are four groovy lads from Earth who have blue cone heads. Yeah, have blue cone heads. Well, there may be some additional level of explanation forthcoming, but visually it makes a ton of sense to me because they look like the blue meanies from the Yellow well, Submarine that, that animated that's, film. That's, yeah, that's what I was also going to say as well. Like, they yeah. have that callback. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, but again, like, so because that's never explained, and because you have this fake newsreel, mm-hmm. a world of ashrams, hashrams, cashcams, flashcams, and crash drums. I love that. That uh, alone was brilliant. Yeah, it, it's it's wonderful. The first two pages is literally the the reintroduction of the scarabs slash beetles to the world. Mm-hmm. You have a page of um, their history mm-hmm. uh, in, in such. Uh, such speed, but also just such beautiful clarity. The language on that page yeah. is fucking spectacular. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's really, really spot on. It, it, it's it's really gorgeous. Um, and then you get the second page, which is their back and their like hyper violence <laughs> cannibals. I mean, what what is, what is going on? It's it's really really crazy. But again, you have. And again, this is a joke that will not make any sense for anyone in America. But the reporter's called Harry Cornflake. Oh, yeah, I didn't get that. Which is, as if I'm correct, it's a Dave Lee Travis reference, who's a DJ in the UK, like, from when I was a kid, mm-hmm. who was called the Harry Cornflake. Ah. Uh. Because he was a breakfast DJ. Uh, I see. But it's like, you know, think, like all of this is jokes upon jokes that... You know, you don't get, but you don't. You're just like that's funny. Yes, that's exactly. a funny name. Mm-hmm. And past, but there's this extra layer of meaning, and 
you know, you get the the John Lennon slash Jim Lemon dialogue, which is so spectacularly spot on. Yes, that's the thing that I was kind of in awe of is just how extraordinarily good. And I think that that's a lot of it. It's not like anyone's, you know, it's not like Ewing's the first one who's ever taken the time to, you know, make fun of the Beatles. But... Oh no, it, it's like it's like the Ruttles done by McCarthy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but just managing but to smarter. nail it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because because of I think that level of of technical brilliance to it is just it's kind of flabbergasting. And what's fascinating is also you know uh, you've got you've got the Fab Four of the Beatles, and then you've got your Fantastic Four analogs. Oh, the next yeah, the yeah. next picture the Fantastic Four show up, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. is spectacular. And again. So spot on, yeah, and so cruel, yes, yeah. yeah like yeah. when the Reed Richards ad look says, "Quiet, Sharon. We've no time for your female intuition now. <laughs> Haven't I told you that you're vital to the team's morale? And if you don't shut up and look pretty, we could all die." <laughs> <laughs> and then the scientist's response to that is, "Okay, Roy hates women." <laughs> exactly, exactly. No, that sort of stuff is just it's it's phenomenally good. Um, Zombo's great. It's you know I actually really enjoyed the Dread uh, first story, and then I think actually I've got the three in the middle that I'm looking forward to reading as well. But it was like I read Dread uh, pretty much as soon as I downloaded the issue. We jumped through lots of hoops, and I made it a point to read to read Zombo, of course. And then the rest, I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to get to it at a quiet moment. I have to say, uh, Dandridge, which is their their dandy. Their yes. Uh, I'm really enjoying that. Yeah, that's actually for, really good. The first episode, I was kind of like, I don't know about this. And the second episode really won me over. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. In large part because Warren Police's art is great. Warren Police is one of those unsung heroes of British comics. Uh, his stuff is just gorgeous. Yes, his stuff is gorgeous. I also think that the, the comic dialogue on it is pretty cracking. Which is, which is, I mean, you know, Ewing's pretty much the king at that at, at this juncture, and there's a lot of um, this particular set of progs are heavily comically skewed, you know, what with yes. the alternate yeah, uh, geeks yeah. and all that stuff. Um, so I think, I think by nature, it's not going to quite come off as good by comparison or seem as fresh, considering there's so much other humor in the mags, but. But I think it's still damn good in and of itself, like especially because there are times where I've been reading 2080 like like five pages at a time rather than the issue all the way through. I yeah. think it, it does it well it, holds it up really very stands well up to that mm-hmm. it's, it's stand, the format really stands up to reading a story and then taking a break and doing something else. Yeah, exactly. Um, and also I, I think we would be completely falling down the job if we did not say that stickleback Australia's art for stickleback oh, Jesus, yeah. is jaw-dropping. Yeah, it is absolutely phenomenal. It um, is worth, for people who are like, I'm really interested in, you know, good comic artists, pay the money just to buy an issue of 2080 right now just to see this art. Yeah, yeah, because it, it is mind-bendingly good. Um, that is just, I mean, it's really hard to describe, really. I mean, it's almost... It, it's like, what if you had, uh, like, Cheers Guru art right. that's ink wash? Mm-hmm. Which yeah. sound which sounds completely contradictory, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but also makes sense when you see it. For whatever a better way of putting it, it's real. It's black and white. It's 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 really uh, it's incredibly stylized. When mm-hmm. you in this issue, when the, you have the 
the page that starts with the large panel of them walking through the the cobbled streets. Mm-hmm. Just what he's doing with space and negative space in that in that yeah. image yeah. is spectacular, and it's his use of of grays within what is it? predominantly black and white. Mm-hmm. But his use of grays within that and and the subtlety of it, yeah, it's it's just it really is amazing. It's yeah. an amazing job. Yeah, it really is. It's just just the most stunning art. Um, you, you know what we should do? Mm. We should actually put a page of this up um, to accompany the podcast on SavageCritic.com. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, I can. I, I should be able to screen cap off the iPad without any trouble. Um, um, because it's it really is. You should. You know that you should put up the first panel of the last page of the strip. The the we're going to see a man about a monster panel. Uh, I will try to remember to do that. I, I, I will. I will take a screen cap of that right now for you because I'm looking at it. Even better. Perfect. Done. Hey, uh, because it's yes, yeah, Stickleback is an. Uh, I, I mean, it's a very good strip as well. Uh, Ian Edgington's doing a really good script and a, a good story, but the art is just amazing. I, we've talked about just really art before when he was doing. Um, is it Mega City Underground? Whatever the the Dirty Frank story was, as part of the the Tribeca. Art. Oh yeah, that's right. Was he? I can't remember. Yeah, yeah, I remember, but that was just really art. Um, and it was great there. But this is this is above and beyond. This mm-hmm. is just stunning stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, right now, 2080 is on fire. It is. Uh, <laughs> but I swear to God, if basically if you think we're funny or you are you think that your sense of humor is vaguely in tune with ours yeah uh, i feel like i can pretty confidently say buy it for zombo alone yeah you will get your money's worth yeah zombo is just astoundingly good yeah it really is it's really really sharp and of course it really does also it helps that there is uh where you ewing is deciding and henry i guess are definitely have um, the Marvel Universe as like one of their side targets and so they just keep actually ringing up just some really spectacularly hilarious um, cheap shots at, at, at that uni- at the expense of the Marvel Universe in many ways. You know, the characters yeah, and the they're, concepts they're John- in it. They're, they're Johnny Storm joke. Oh yeah. Which is just one line. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's brutal and also spectacular yeah yeah i i i loved it um hmm. let me talk about something i'm coolish on because it's like there's something that i picked up that i had no idea existed and i was like sweet jesus this has got to be the best thing ever and it so bummed me out (laughs) it's clearly not it's not yeah exactly but um have you heard of agent gates uh I honestly can't tell you because it's such a generic name. Such a generic name. It is It is an actual uh, graphic novel from Andrews McNeil Publishing by Cameron Sabaya and Kyle Hilton. And it is a parody... It is a graphic novel parody of Downton Abbey, which suggests oh, that... Oh, wait. It's, yes, I have. And maybe because you've told me about it. No, no. I didn't know about it until just three days ago, and I think I kept oh, it under... Oh, well, yeah. Mm-hmm. Then I, I read about it somewhere. Yeah. In which uh, a, a Master Mr. Bates is, in fact, a secret agent with a robot leg that is um, assigned to Downton Abbey 
to, you know, help fight uh, foreign infiltration. And of course, Thomas is the secret other agent um, who is in the pro called Thompson here, who's in the process of trying to help um, bring about uh, anarchy and war. And in a way, it really is. I kind of I was like, oh, this will be perfect, like because um, the Dowager Countess has the power to like turn things into stone with a glance and like Anna is like a young empath who's like able to like understand so she becomes sort of part of their side division so there's kind of this weird thing of like um, you know it's basically like what if Downton Abbey was I don't know like the Invisibles or the basically strip of yeah. 2000 AD you know yeah. exactly yeah. and I was like oh this will be great and in fact it's it's a bit it's a bit of a bore um, what what it's funny because you were like, "This will be great." When you're describing to me, I'm like, "How could that? How could that be good?" <laughs> that's that's genuinely my response. I, it, just because it sounds it sounds like something that is so high concept mm -hmm. that I can imagine them coming up with high concept and then not bothering to come up with anything else. Right. Right. Does um, that make sense? Yeah, but I, I think, think so. I think that's always a worry with parody. Uh, well, I think the thing that's kind of great is there is part of me that's like, once you give Bates kind of a robot leg or something like that, I'm kind of like, how do I put it? I, think, I don't need anything else. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, I kind of don't, because I think that there would be a way in, how do I put it? There's like a really clever satire waiting, like at the intersection of everyone's Downton Abbey love and all the steampunk love that could you could satisfactorily sort of do a piss up of both kind of just even by mixing them together you know because the stuff that Downton Abbey is so indebted to you know some of that stuff is getting you know remade with zombies and pirates and alligators uh, anyway so the idea of throwing in like robots and telepaths and um, shape changers or whatever seems really kind of absurd to me and kind of fun. I think the problem is, is that, um, you know, in the midst of it, they're trying to also skewer, like do it as a satire of Downton Abbey. And it really is not going to, I guess, work like that. You know what I mean? Like, there's really mm -hmm. just so much you can skewer about Downton Abbey. You don't really need, like, a dude with a robot leg to do it. Also, it's kind of like, I mean, unless you're part of your satire is focusing on the drippiest character in the show to sort of accentuate how the series itself keeps accentuating the drippiest character on the show. I don't I don't see where you're going with that. Like, right off the bat, I'm like, you're doing it wrong. But it's a shame, because I really was like... Yeah, I want to. Do I want to see Downton Abbey with superpowers? I do, you know. And unfortunately, after I read it, I was like, "But not like this." <laughs> yes, but but I would still like to see it somewhere. Yeah, somewhere. Maybe if anyone's like inspired to take a go at it, believe me, uh, the, the the they did not they did not come close to hitting it out of the park. Adam Nave, we're calling on you. That's right, exactly. Uh, so, what do you want to tell me about the disappointing thing before you get to the unexpected? Sure. Great thing, let's or? let's let's. And I said this on Twitter, but I said this on Twitter. I think on Friday when no one is paying attention, and so it bears repeating. Stormwatch issue nineteen, Jeff Lester. Oh yeah, I was Storm I was, saw your Storm blog oh, ad entry. So, oh yeah. Okay, Stormwatch issue nineteen is when Jim Starlin comes on board the title as writer. Yes. And 
what has clearly happened is someone has given it to Jim Starlin and said, we don't care what you do with the book. Right. Do that voodoo that you do so well. Mm -hmm. And Jim Starlin has done that. Here's the problem. A, it's not 1976 anymore. Right. And B, Jim Starlin actually starts the comic in three pages by retconning original team out of continuity altogether See. with with godlike beings that just appear out of nowhere and just do it mm -hmm. they're, they're like this is literally the dialogue from the godlike beings the planet is proving much more troublesome than anticipated timeline magenta is my recommendation agreed initiating that's it and then the kill of Adam 1 who is around at the big bang Mm -hmm. there's two problems about this one you've just fucking rebooted the entire universe with aliens that you don't see again mm -hmm. well yeah just... I mean it's only been one issue I know but trust me there is something in the issue that makes you think you'll ever see them again sure uh, here's the other thing you've killed off a character that someone's using in another book <laughs> Adam 1 a month earlier just started appearing in Demon Knight Oh, wow. So, you know, I'm really glad that, you know, they've cleared that with everyone. Mm -hmm. But by killing him back then, they have wiped out the original Stormwatch and replaced it with what I can only describe as the most generic version of Stormwatch you could imagine. <laughs> it is <laughs> astonishing how generic it is. Mm. At, like, astonishing. The, uh, Stormwatch were never the most individual characters, and what really gave them their edge, either Stormwatch or their authority, was the execution. Yes. This is such bland execution mm -hmm. that I I dare you to give this comic to anyone and say, do you know that these characters were once some of the most popular characters in the comic industry and revolutionized it? Because they will look at you like you're high. They will be like, wait... These characters are not the product of like some sixty-year-old drug-addled mind who has just t told he has twenty pages to fill, because that—that's what they seem like. It is terrible. Hmm. Also, you'll be happy to know that. Uh, do you remember Jenny Sparks slash Jenny Quantum? Yes. <coughs> Jim Starlin's got this great idea. Yeah. Now she's Jenny Soul. Jenny Soul. Because that's what the 21st century is all about. <laughs> do they say that's what the 21st century is all about? Or do they just call her Jenny Soul and let they you just call her the Jenny dots? Soul. Okay. Yeah, they just call her Jenny Soul. Um, the, the one plus, one plus I can say about this comic mm -hmm. is that Starlin makes a point of showing Midnighter kiss Apollo. Mm -hmm. Because I genuinely was convinced he was going to retcon their relationship away. I, I, I'm not even vaguely joking really yeah everything else is so incredibly generic mm -hmm. like the engineer is now this regular woman who when she needs it has a body of liquid armor mm -hmm. which is the opposite of what the original character was right was it not that she was pretty much stuck like that or am i misremembering i don't remember because i honestly i don't remember i know that she had i thought she was stuck in the body of liquid armor but but maybe not. But maybe not? Yeah, I really don't know. I don't know. But yeah, so the team is now um, 
God, is he called Storm One or something? They're a mysterious leader who is mysterious and say, points out that he is mysterious. He's called Storm King. Wow. And it's, they have two pages pointing out how mysterious he is and how no one else knows who he is. Mm-hmm. Okay, there's him, there's Apollo Midnighter, there's the Engineer, there's Jenny Soul, there's the Weird, who I'm sure everyone has been clamoring for a comeback. Oh, yeah, exactly. Time. And some character called Hellstrike. <laughs> you know, really, fuck knows. Uh, and they have a new mission. And their new mission is to rescue Lobo. <laughs> it's appalling it's it's appalling appalling it's it's one of those things where i'm just like they should have cancelled the book right they should have cancelled the book before doing this yeah because this comic has an astounding lack of respect for everything that's come before Mm mm-hmm it literally writes out the entire earlier incarnation of the team. The people, like someone somewhere, has spent eighteen issues buying, right, in three pages. Well, I think that I think a, that's a like machina that's just like, oh, this isn't working out. Fuck them, and brings in an entirely different team. Well, that's interesting because I, I, weirdly enough, I sort of figured that it would be an even worse form of retcon. At least I feel like that way has a certain amount of the, like. Oh, if there's too much of a clamor, you can be like, oh, no, 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 the other team's coming back. You know, like you could have like two forms of, you know, the the Stormwatch fight one another or, you know what I mean? Like you could at least get a B-plot going with them. I'm not saying that, that Starlin will. I think it's probably likely that Oh, no, this this comic is cancelled in six issues. Yeah, so I think there, that Because there is likely. no way that... I just feel like this comic actually alienates the few people that have been reading it for 18 issues. Yeah, exactly. Well, and I do see that. Anything to bring on new readers. Like, it strikes me as the most boneheaded move. Yeah. I, uh, you know, unless someone in DC actually lost a bet and had to give Jim Starlin this job, I have no (laughs) idea what they were doing. It's appallingly bad. Well, I think, I think that Dio has a warm spot for Starlin and is very much like when stuff starts going awry, you know, I mean, that's the thing that's really interesting is is that there's a few other things where I get the sense of, like, did, where DiDio's fanboyism is, like, so weirdly not anchored in DC, you know? Like, and so he will do those things. Like, he really has, like, given Starlin several chances. Oh, yeah, Starlin's had, had a lot of comics uh, mm-hmm. DC over the last few years. Yeah, over the last few all, years, yeah. All of them that have sold terribly. Yeah, well, exactly. That's, that's the part that it just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. Like... You could have given this book to anyone, and you give it to the guy who has, to be completely honest, never performed for you. Right. Well, never performed, like, in your era, admittedly. I mean, it is kind of okay. silly. That has not work. performed for 30 years. Sure. Well, 30 years? Yeah. What's... Okay, what? 20? When was Death of the Family? 20... At least twenty-five. It's at least a quarter. Of yeah, a sure. Twenty twenty-five years. Okay, so he's never performed for DC. Well, I don't know. Maybe so. There was he was pretty big back in like the late eighties. In the sense of, I feel like he did sell copies with Death of the Family and maybe even Cosmic Odyssey. And uh, what was he the called? weird? Well, not the weird, but you know, the Batman weird the Cult, Gilgamesh two. The, the the cult sold a ton. Yeah, admittedly, people were like, eh. And then he goes back in to Marvel in the 90s, and he's actually selling books again with the uh, Infinity stuff, you know? 
True, but he like for DC. Well, no, and admittedly for DC, I mean it is sh- shocking I'd... and stunning that he keeps coming back. But like I said, I do have that sense of. I also get the sense that that Didio kind of throws him on like he's like their suicide guy. He's like, okay, no one can pull this out. I'll just give it to Jim Starlin because he doesn't necessarily care that it's going to fail, and you know he gets money and healthcare out of the deal. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. Who knows? It's yeah. just. But so I'm, I'm sorry. I'm looking through the comic and I've realized that Hell Strikes Johnson or Hell Strikes has secret identity. No. Yes. <laughs> it is a spectacular name, Nigel Smut. <laughs> is he a London pornographer or something? Nigel Smut is Smut is a former South African police officer, a bit of a racist, and what some would call a superhuman. That's that's actually dialogue from the comic. <laughs> oh, I I didn't think I. I want to say that I thought that was you, Graham, but I couldn't pull that lie off. You'll you'll be happy to know that um, that when the engineer fights uh, some sort of generic fat man, mm-hmm. uh, he actually calls her Robo Bimbo at one point because the dialogue is, "Yeah, that's it, Robo Bimbo. I love it when you chicks put up a good fight." Oh God! I mean, in all seriousness, yeah, I can't believe this comic got published. I yeah. I can't. There there's like happy nostalgia. There's you know, this guy was great once and we have affinity for him. Right. But this comic is just genuinely not publishable yeah. for, for anyone else. I can't believe anyone else would have got this comic through. Yeah, agreed. I, I mean, agreed in that it sounds like. And I do think that there is, because your blog at made a really good point, which is that um, titles in the New 52 essentially rebooting themselves. Like 18 months after launch? Yeah, is is really bad. I mean, that's like I cannot believe what a horrific scenario that. Yeah, I, I genuinely think for the for New Fifty Two brand and for DC overall, it mm-hmm. is less harmful to cancel the book. Mm-hmm. I I think I agree with you, or or figure out something. You know, I I was actually thinking about how. Um, Marvel really did a pretty good job, in a way, with characters that they... You know, back in the 70s, there were the characters that could never carry their own books, and they kept trying. Actually, weirdly enough, this ties into your Inhuman post, in a way. Like, the, uh, which I thought was... I should... Hopefully, I'll remember to include links to this in the time codes, because for listeners who don't necessarily follow Graham's uh, uh, sort of daily musings at blog at Newsarama. He's usually has a post or two, and uh, I think he's been actually pretty sp- spot on with the with some <laughs> of the things. I've been great. You have been. I've, I've been on fire. Uh, thanks. <laughs> I, I thought so. Because I, I thought your idea of uh, especially talking about the Inhumans and sort of refining kind of your earlier like, ugh. You know, to be more of a like the interesting thing about the Inhumans is, well, your point is is that they're they're part of Kirby's Marvel universe that never has really worked for the Marvel universe since actually, and I'm not even sure it really worked for the Marvel universe back then. See, and that's what I was going to say. Once you got away from Kirby doing it, nobody could really make it work because they had the Uncanny Adventures with. Um, I want to say Gil Kane was doing stuff with them, you know. It, and I, had, they had, right. I actually went back and looked. It was Amazing Adventures with Roy Thomas and Neil Adams immediately after um, Kirby left. After Kirby left, okay, great. So I mean, that's like, oh. and then I think it became Jerry Conway, right? And someone, maybe Gil Kane. Maybe it was. Maybe I saw Conway and Kane at that point, and 
uh, there's just characters that were not able to like work. And one of the things that was kind of nice about the Marvel universe is that they couldn't carry their own title, but they still sort of moved about, you know, they popped up in a superhero team here for a while. Then maybe they, you know, they ducked out of there and then they showed up in the background of some other title. And then suddenly they, it was super villain team up for 15 issues, you know, well to go, to go back to your idea of the deal as not a DC fanboy, mm-hmm. that's definitely something from seventies Marvel that he's brought over to the new 52 because oh, you had right. like, Oh my canceled. And then he joined justice league international. Exactly. Yeah. You know, and they are sort uh, for example, Mr. Terrific cancelled and immediately pops up in Earth too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the storylines do continue. There is the idea of like the universe, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Uh, even now, you've got Booster Gold is popping up in All Star Western. Mm. In All Star Western? Yeah. <laughs> it's as time displaced yeah, Booster. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah, that's the reveal. The reveal is that's their uh, WTF reveal. Wow. That Booster Gold has basically ended up there, not exactly under his own volition. That's really uh, funny. And I I could be wrong, and I have no inside information on this, mm-hmm. but I'm wondering if it's leading up to some revival of the Hex concept. Oh, man. Which would be great. That would be great. I have to admit, I would totally love to re-see that. Um, yeah, I it, you know, it. so it's interesting. That's fascinating that DC's interested in doing that, and yet, like, sort of way after it's way too late. You know, like they're still just pushing out too many books. They're not willing to let the books go in many cases when they're not working. It's just, it's. it's... What's really interesting is June was the first month that there was not 52, 52 books. Oh, really? There was 50. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's either because they've got two coming next month and, you know, they're like, no, no notice, except everyone noticed. Um, <laughs> or they're actually giving giving up idea that they have to have 52 which would be really healthy yeah yeah it would be a very good idea for them well yes although they really have to figure out a way to make everything work you know what i mean like they have to give up those books and then they also need to um i don't know you know because i i don't know assuming that only a small number of people of readers comic book readers actually read news on the internet um even despite you know, even despite that, I would get the sense that a lot of people would feel like things just seem way too, I don't know, choppy, choppy. Yeah. Way too choppy and sort of out I, of control. I think, I think even if you didn't, I think if you're only reading the comics, mm-hmm. but you're a big DC fan, you were buying a lot of their comics, mm-hmm. you would have an idea that something might be, if not wrong, mm-hmm. then at least skew with, mm-hmm. um, Especially when you see it, like when Diggle disappears after from Action Comics after an issue, right? Like you'd notice that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been really weird for Green Lantern in the last couple of issues because Duck Mackey just disappeared. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like he was just gone all of a sudden. Uh, and I'm guessing it's because he's doing like the extra size final issue of Jeff Johntron, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. but he was literally just gone in the middle of the storyline. Man, yeah. Uh, you know, things like that, I think, will pop up and will... That even if you do not pay attention to any of the quote-unquote gossip, um, you would be like, 
man, is you know, are they preparing for something? Like, you know, the best will in the world. Are right. they preparing for a big launch? Because all these guys are disappearing, and like all <laughs> these guys keep changing jobs. Right. Exactly. Exactly. You know, there's there's definitely a feeling just from the books themselves of, um, of there being plans that do not work out for want of a better way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and and or the idea that the it's one thing when 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 things don't work out, but I for me it, I it it may be. It's hard for me to imagine that other people don't feel the same way, but they might not. But for me, as like an old comics continuity fan, the idea is is that something didn't work out, but it still got acknowledged. Like maybe someone would take a piece and integrate it, but, you know, there was at least a kind of concept of like, you know, well, that happened as opposed to, well, that well, happened. That, that, you know? That's what, yeah, that's what's so amazing about the Stormwatch thing. Mm-hmm. It's literally saying none of that happened right which is so bold mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that it's kind of breathtaking mm-hmm. it's literally like yeah none yeah none of that happened. no no here's the characters and they're completely different from what you thought no no totally new and it's just like really i that i can't wow <laughs> it's like i can't i can't get my head around that <laughs> it just seems weirdly disrespectful uh, yeah, I mean, assuming that there's not an additional piece in that, because like I said, like if that sort of thing happened back in 1986 or 1987, I would definitely be like, holy cow, when what's happening to the old team? Where are they going to pop up? You know what I mean? It's just, yeah, it's it, yeah. unfortunately, I feel that it says a lot about how our expectations are sort of lowered about what we would expect from continuity uh, these days from DC, that it's kind of like, well, that's the end of that then. You know, it's just like that was a horrible, horrible way to, you know, tie things off, you know. And we don't necessarily yeah. know, but it seems unfortunately considering how many reversals and really bad um awkward reversals DC has made in the last 18 months, it's hard not to look at it and be like, well, that that is the way that it is. And that was awful, you know. Let's so. let's leave it like this. I actually almost told you to buy this comic just because it's so bad. Oh, I have to admit it, Graham. Listen, let's leave it to this. I will probably buy it next month. Uh, or, well, I don't know. It depends, actually. I could pick could a buy copy with Hibs. I was thinking about digitally when it's marked down a buck. I actually was. Because then that way, you know. Because I... it's, 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 it's horrendous. But then they might get a sales bump. Don't buy it, people. <laughs> but don't, don't reward this book. But, but see, if I buy it digitally, I don't think they would know that. You know what I mean? Like, there's not, it doesn't really show up in any way that it matters, especially like a month later. Like, by that point, you're so far into the long tail kind of concept, you know? Well, maybe. Jeff, you're actually beginning to go weird, so why don't we actually take a break? Okay, that sounds. Uh, uh, and great. then come back, so we're just after the hour mark. Yeah. Um, in the words of NPR, we'll be right back after this message. <laughs> back 
Indeed we are. Hey, Jeff, uh, do you want to know something funny? What? I'm going to be at NPR this weekend. <laughs> okay, hold on just one second, because um, I want to hear more about that, but realized I went to great trouble to pour myself a glass of water and then left it in the next room. <laughs> hold on. Listeners, what you're not hearing is that Jeff is actually really jealous and is going to do that whole grass and grass and what? Ah, what the hell were you saying, damn it? <laughs> exactly. You'll find out when you edit. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so tell me, NPR. Yeah, I really am. Um, I got uh, a message this morning from All Things Considered. What? Uh, they're like, hey, you wrote about uh, Game of Thrones Pirate. Because uh, Game of Thrones became the most pirated television show. <laughs> I like I broke a record on Monday. Oh, wow. Uh, for the latest episode, like within 24 hours, more than a million people have downloaded it. Oh my god! Um, and so yeah, I broke this record, and, and I wrote about it for for Wired, um, and I got this message smart from All Things Considered, and they're like, "Yeah, can we talk to you in backgrounds?" And I was like, "Sure, it's backgrounds, whatever." So I do a phone call with them, and we t- I talk to them f- to like 20 minutes, half an hour, and they're great. So listen, can you get yourself to like, your local member station so we could we could have an interview with you tomorrow? Oh my god. So yeah, so tomorrow I am pre-recording an interview that's going to go out on Sunday, which by the time this is podcast is released, yes. will have been the previous week. Right. Will have been the previous Sunday. But I can tell you ahead of time. Wow, that is fantastic. That is <laughs> I really just thought great. it was funny because I always do the like, fake NPR, ha ha ha. Yeah, I'm actually going to be in an NPR studio tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock. Holy shit, man. That is That is amazing. <laughs> what great news. So yeah, that's. I thought I'd because we're this is our positive episode, Jeff. I thought I'd start with a piece of positive weirdness. Yeah, that's weird. That is weird and weirdly positive. So that is fantastic. So there you go. Wow, I'm gonna have to. You're gonna have to let me know when that gets. Um, it's it's going out on Sunday, and that's all I know right now. Oh my god, I've got to find that in somehow. Su- Sundays, all things considered, gank a copy off the internet because that would be the best. You know. Because then I could actually integrate, if I was being ambitious, if I could integrate some <laughs> oh God, of the footage pl- of you. Please don't. Oh, please do not. Why? That would be the best. No. Can't no, cross no, those no. streams. Huh? Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's bad. <laughs> that's that's bad bad news. But I kind of want to cross the streams with the thing that was surprisingly good. Yes. Oh. Well, okay. Uh, so I'll move on to that. Mm-hmm. You will remember, Jeff, that Marvel. Uh, I want to say it's two months ago now. Uh, announced a partnership with Hyperion to do chiclet books. Oh yeah, I saw the thing on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was Jeff's moment of I told you so. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You will remember that I was somewhat dismissive. Of this mm-hmm. Thing. Mm-hmm. You might remember that I wrote about that in Wired, being somewhat dismissive of this. You may not know because I may not have told you that one of the authors wrote to me because of that. No, you did not tell me. Okay, so a woman called Marta Acosta who write, writes the She-Hulk book, the She-Hulk Diaries. Mm-hmm wrote to me and was like thanks very much for writing it up like I know it's weird but I can promise you that I'm going to really try my hardest you know I, I totally get that you're cynical mm-hmm. but you know speaking as one of the authors I am genuinely going to try and do the best book she's like it's not going to be exactly what superhero fans might be used to from the character right? because I'm writing it for a new audience but I'm going to try and be as true to the character as I can and I was like, you know, completely fair play to you. I think it's great that you wrote to me. I feel, you know, somewhat chastised for for being so dismissive. Mm-hmm. But like you, you are like I, I very much believe that you are trying 
to do, you know do the best book right and I think it's going to be a really difficult job good luck and so then two weeks ago or so she's like so I've got a galley do you want my galley oh man and I was like do I want your galley yes I want your galley <laughs> yes yes I do please wow that sounds so porny when you put it like that I don't know your mind's in the gutter <laughs> Um, and so she sent me it and what it is is it's actually a flip galley so it's the She-Hulk Diaries and Rogue Touch which is the other title wow okay um, and I read the She-Hulk Diaries this weekend mm-hmm. I, I'm completely unashamed to say this I thought it was great that's terrific uh, it, it's there is no getting away from the fact that it is very campy mm-hmm. uh, in particular the resolution is breathtakingly campy uh, and I kind of want to say why but I also do not want to spoil it because it's one of those things that happens and you're like that is genius but the sort of genius that like maybe not everyone will appreciate but I'm totally like oh my god that's so perfect um, it is very much uh, Ally McBeal with She-Hulk mm-hmm. but maybe Ally McBeal meets Sex in the City with She-Hulk perhaps mm-hmm um, the take on She-Hulk is not necessarily the traditional superhero take on She-Hulk. Mm-hmm. It, that it's it's more Hulk-esque, if that makes sense. Gotcha. Uh, there is a a different personality, mm. uh, and so she's aware of the different personality. Um, but I loved it. I I genuinely thought it was great, and I I really wish that that version of She-Hulk was the one in the comics. Really. Yeah, I was like, I really like this version where it's because what it essentially is is Jennifer Walters being a, a lawyer and She Hulk is Jennifer Walters completely unrestrained. Mm-hmm. So it's not like I'm violent, I'm punching, mm-hmm. but it's like fuck it, I'm just going to go and party all night and then fuck whoever I want, <laughs> and you know Jennifer's just going to have to deal with this. I see, but well, so it's almost. It's almost like how She-Hulk is now, just with kind of more of a more like, it's more of a sort of uh, split personality. Split personality, alter ego, and the other alter yes. ego isn't necessarily going to like this kind of concept. Yes. Okay. It's all written. It is actually written as a diary, mm-hmm. and it's so it's all from Jennifer's perspective. Mm. Um, but it is a mystery of sorts. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are supervillains in it. There are Marvel Universe supervillains in it. Really? Oh, that's great. There are shout-outs to Iron Man, uh, the Avengers, the Fantastic Four. There are specific shout-outs to Dan Slott's She-Hulk run. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it's like she's done her homework. Mm-hmm. I mean, she has clearly done her homework. Um, yeah, it, it's really, really fun. It's a really fun read. That's fantastic. It's one of those things, like, I started because I was like, this will be fun. And then, no joke, I sped through this weekend because I was just like, this is great. This is trashy as shit, but I'm adoring this book. (laughs) Well, that's phenomenal. What great news that is. Yeah, I really, really, like, I really hope it's a success for her, for Marvel, for Hyperion. Hmm. I have to admit, I'm scared to start Rogue Touch now. Yeah, I would think. I'm kind of like... Oh man, because it's not that I went to Chiok with really low expectations, but right. like I really have unfairly high expectations of Rogue Touch now because I like Chiok Diaries so much. Well, there's that, and also I do remember like there were as the aspects that you were most critical of really came out in the stuff about Rogue. 
Yes, it's it's very much like it looks very much like a Twilight esque book with Rogue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as we said, I'm not a fan of the fact that Rogue's love interest is called Touch. So yes, the book is literally named after its lead characters. <laughs> Rogue, comma Touch. Wow, that yeah, is kind so, of terrible. So, you know, heesh. Um, the She-Hulk Diaries, because they are going to be sold singly, so it's not like you'd be buying both books. Right. Uh, She-Hulk Diaries, I believe, comes out at the end of May, maybe mm. the beginning of June. Uh, and for people who, for people who like me, like actually like Chicklets when it's done well, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and like She-Hulk and like sort of thing, you should totally pick it up. It's really, really fun. That's terrific. Oh, that's really good news. Um. I, like I said, I remember being kind of like, oh, I don't know if they did it right. So I'm actually kind of tickled that they did it right. The, the yeah. She-Hulk one she, really the was. She-Hulk one is definitely done right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that would have been the one that I would have had the most hope for and interest in. So I think that actually works out really well for me. Yeah, um, I, I, yeah I, 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 I'm eating my words. I <laughs> really am. It's, it's great. It's really good. That's fantastic. Fantastic. Well, listen, this is not something that's positive, uh, and in fact may well end up being the sort of thing that uh, in the past has capsized our, our, our episodes. But i got to talk about Giant Man a little bit, you know? <laughs> okay, just as a character? Yeah. Like, one of the things that's kind of interesting to me is, so you have Hank Pym, and there's kind of that idea of, like, he's like, how do I put it? Like, well, there's essentially the turning point, sort of the point of no return for the character, which is, of course, uh, under Jim Shooter, where Hank Pym basically freaks out and hits uh, the Wasp. And as a spouse abuser, uh, it's kind of this point that kind of goes like, you know, it's kind of the thing that everyone, has, as far as I can tell taken a stab at trying to, to rede- fix, redeem yeah. the character or yeah. fix the character sense. Can um, I can I make a controversial statement before you get any further? Sure. I don't think, like, I, I agree that's the turning point. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the unredeemable thing in that storyline, and I think that the fact that it has become the unredeemable thing in everyone's mind mm-hmm. is really weird. Okay. Um, because the storyline is, he's, go- he's having an nervous breakdown, and for want of a better word, he's going insane. Right. And later in the same storyline, he tries to kill all of the Avengers. Mm-hmm. And the fact that... I don't know, the fact that hitting his wife... and it, Unless I'm misremembering, does he not hit her... I'm, I'm trying so close to like not say, is there not a reason he hits her? <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, is there, this is conversation there is like, over, not, Graham McMillan. It's not... Yeah, <laughs> Am I misremembering? Because you've obviously read it more recently than I. No, I actually have not. See, that's the thing that's a kicker. Because uh, I want to say, like, there's a conflict and he hits her and he immediately apologizes. Oh, he immediately apologizes. I do think there is that. He does lash out at her and he immediately apologizes. I, I uh, but, seem to but recall then, that. But then he goes on to try and kill her and the rest of the Avengers. Yes, exactly. And I find it fascinating that no one ever remembers that part. That it's it's become... He hit his wife, whereas, like, Spider-Man has also hit his wife. Yes. Not apologize, and everyone's like, but he was having a bad day. 
I find oh, it really... I don't I don't think it comes I think that I think that Spider Man hitting his wife is the sort of thing that almost never comes up. Like fans that, just instantly I mean. like it just didn't happen. Right, exactly. Fans well, retconned that out of reality. They're just like that didn't happen. Him, it became the defining thing. Exactly. Because there's and I, that's fascinating. Yeah, I think so too. So here's the thing that blows my mind is I've been reading you know, it, I reached the period in the Hulks where I am reading the Tales to Astonish where he's the backup feature and you've got all these giant man stories in the front, okay. which I've talked about them being spectacularly god-awful, right? Mm. The thing that's amazing about it is it really is remarkably consistent. Like, in the giant man stories, Hank Pym is a huge fuck-up, is kind of weirdly emotionally abusive to the wasp and um let's just return to being and, and is basically horrible under pressure like and <laughs> i don't think that that's designed to be like part of it is, is again they have these situations where whoever's plotting the stories it might be stanley but it really generally i'm sure he's trying to leave it on this artist i actually read a giant man story where he has this like new invention that he has created that is going to allow him to essentially turn it it's like his new scientific weapon that's going to give him like enough of it he's going to be like a real avenger now which is actually how he puts it which is kind of weird and creepy he the power is essentially his power to turn everything else big so <laughs> that's going to make him a real avenger he ba- exactly. He basically is like, see, I can grow this cat up until, oh my god, Tabby, no! Like, I mean, it's this amazing, <laughs> that happens twice in the book. <laughs> like, I'm just like, oh my god, what are you doing? Whoever is coming up with this. <laughs> so, he's like, yeah, I mean, it's a perfect weapon. We're, ah! And then, and my then. Eyes. <laughs> <laughs> it's the cat tries to kill him twice then he like knocks over some superhero his growth drops it, you know this fluid under a table and a spider gets at it and so he uh, basically almost dies when this what giant what do you think Hank Pym would make a great sitcom he, he really would I mean it's kind of it's, it's Venture Brothers it's so scarily Venture Brothers esque he is so scarily Rusty Venture in so many ways because he really is like ah someone save me Jan you know so so Jan... <laughs> oh my god I so want to read that comment <laughs> we're like Jan just comes in and she's like oh my god what have you done now yeah I mean she basically flies around and she's able to like sting the the giant spider enough that it distracts him and hurts him and stuff until until Hank Pym's able to do something and I swear to god is like he, he's able to find some other special thing that he has underneath one of his shoulder flaps. That is a costume that she made for him. And I mean, it literally is one of those things where he's like, okay, get to sewing. She's like, ah, you know. So half- what, what's, what's fascinating is like, I mean, was Stanley writing these comics? Because when the characters appear in the Avengers, like Hank is totally square-jawed, mm-hmm. like hero. And the Wasp is offensively inept. Yeah. Like, yeah, the Wasp yeah. is literally like, oh, it's a big blonde man. Ha, giggle. I hope I don't fuck him. Like- <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, there is kind of a little bit of the, the Wasp's main thing is she's kind of like, well, Dreamboat, like, she's pretty much like, 
get over here and fuck me, basically, is is how she's acting through most of the thing. He's like, no, no, no. And she's like, you know, she's like, yes, yes, yes. yeah, like, come on. Like, okay, I'll just go off and do stuff on my own. And then afterwards, he's like, oh, is she gone? You know, and then like, you know, five pages later, he's like, but you know, you're the only one for me, baby. Like, you know, just because, because no one else would put up with me because I'm not even I'm not even interested in you. Yeah, yeah, basically. I mean, he's really just incredibly like emotionally distant for most of the book in in part because Stanley sort of like what he's picked up from the Fantastic Four whether it's his own plotting stuff or from Kirby is half these stories are like okay let's show Giant Man doing an experiment that shows off his powers and then maybe it can go wrong and then maybe we move on to the rest of the series you know um and in the case of the giant spider issue it was just someone's like, okay, and so then this giant spider gets out of control and basically kills Hank Pym, and that's after he grows the cat twice, and the cat attacks him, like, both times, like, without even hesitation. Like, he's like, oh, here you go, Tabby. I go! Not again! <laughs> I know! I'm like, why did you do it a second time? You know, apart than the pad of this page count. And then there's the other stuff where it's like, he's just had this big showdown with, what's her name, Madame Macabre? whose ability it to um, shrink things or grow things um, makes She also her... has the ability to shrink things. Yeah, but only only things built to... Only things built by her manservant. Um, so she basically, like, comes up with these, like, crazy traps, basically. Like, she puts Giant Man in a giant... in a house, and then shrinks the house down around him, and he's trapped. And then, fortunately, the wasp is able to sort of free him but actually this issue really does have mo- and I don't remember what the big spin is like it's um they they do they do they do do this really great thing where they're just like um they just let the villain get away he's like oh well you know so the this plotting is so slipshod in these giant mans but the thing that's amazing is in in Stanley's attempts to sort of give the dialogue some juice and because it's always these experiments kind of going wrong it's not like it's not like there's a Ben Grimm to accidentally drop the machine and suddenly have things kind of go wrong it's all Hank Pym's fault so he really <laughs> is this this, this is when you like suddenly must be like shit I need a team yeah yeah, basically. Well, he's kind of like, I'm doing too much guy on my a own. dumb guy. Because yeah, yeah, right yeah. now, I've only got a smart guy who's dumb. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I've got a smart guy who's dumb, and and then the wasp more or less has to get him out of out of stuff, you know? And when they're doing their lovey-dovey dialogue, there is something that's kind of cute, because Stanley really is trying to do a... um, You know, the, they're a couple, you know? Uh, but it's so... um. It's just it's just such slop, you know. It really is just sloppy. And it's because I'm trying to think who actually drew this episode with Madame Macabre, because it's not Is I it was, not Don Heck? I always feel like Don Heck did a lot of them. He he comes and goes. He actually okay. did the previous issue that might have been the giant spider rampage. This one is by Bobby Powell and inked by Frankie Ray. So I guess uh, Bobby and Frankie. Yeah, exactly. I think Bob Powell... Well, Bob Powell is, was a big name, right? Yeah, I think so. So I think that's probably who he was. And, and then... Frankie Ray, as we know, went on to become Nova. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I didn't know that she had her career as an inker. And God God bless if John 
burn. I'm half surprised he didn't actually do that as like a little piece. I of wouldn't movie. be surprised. I read um, X Men: The Hidden Years Volume Two the other week, and that is that. I mean, that is John Byrne getting his continuity part on like you would not fucking believe. It really? is stunning. I, I I wouldn't be surprised if half of that book was people naming obscure 1950s Marvel comics and going, "I bet you can't work this comic in." Right. And him being like, oh, 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 oh. oh, just you wait. I'll get four issues out of it. <laughs> and he does. <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, that's hardly surprising, I think. Um, so yeah, Giant Man is deranged, but I'm kind of I'm kind of. It's it, you make it. It's one of those things where you've just made it sound much better than it actually is. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, I can tell because I'm like, I would totally read that comic, and I know that. Everything that I like about your description is an accident. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, but but that is kind of. But it's amazing how from issue to issue, it's shockingly consistent. So I, I'm kind of. I'm not paying enough attention. I don't know how much Giant Man I have to keep going with my Hulk. At some point, it's just going to go back to being just the Hulk. But just after issue 100, it goes back to the Hulk. Oh, really? God, well, what so, issue? Show my reading here, right? Because it becomes Hulk. It. Uh, well, let me see here. Uno momento por favor. Um. <laughs> well, this was. Come on, page turn. Uh. Wow. Okay. So I just read Tales to Astonish issue sixty-six. Oh, so you've got a lot, my friend. I, I don't know how. Long, I don't know how long Giant Man stays in there, though. Isn't Submariner or someone coming to it soon? He, oh, I bet he does. I bet he does. In fact, yeah, Tales to Astonish 71 has Submariner on the cover. Um, and where does that turn? Oh, right. So it's pretty gosh darn soon. Like 67, 68. Yeah, anyway, I may only have a three, three or four more issues of like, well, clearly this is shit is not working out. Hijinks. But I'm I'm kind of loving it. I have to admit. So. Are Are you a Giant Man fan? Are you a Hank Pym fan? See, that's the thing. Where, where are you before this? I should say. Uh, bef- before this stuff came along, the only time that I liked the character was when Inglehart was handling him in West Coast Avengers. I was going to say that was. I think that was possibly my first real exposure to him, mm-hmm. and I really liked him. And it, he's one of those characters I have great affection for in West Coast Avengers, and almost no affection for anywhere else. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Is that true? I really like Wade's uh, take on him in Daredevil. Mm, interesting. Well, I can almost see where Wade's take on him in Daredevil might be strangely similar to Englehart's in a way. You know? uh, it, no, he's, he's doing a much more straightforward, like, he's just the scientist guy who shows up and helps out. Uh, he, is, he is pretty much like Matt Murdock's scientist friend at this point. Mm. Um, but I really like it. Like, I just like the way he's, he's, he's handled there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and part of it, I think, is just... Chris Samney art automatically wins you over to a character. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's I like, Chris Samney's drawing Ant-Man? Great. <laughs> on board. I will sign <laughs> off on that. Um, but I thought when you brought him up, you were going to talk about the fact of um, Avengers AI that has been announced. Oh, right. Or do you not know about this? I do. Where Avengers, it's... I should explain for listeners, because people did ask us to provide more context. Mm-hmm. Avengers AI is a new team book. It's an ongoing book written by Sam Humphreys and drawn by someone I can't remember the name of. Mm-hmm. Um, it's drawn by the person who did the Fantastic Four Age of Ultron tie-in. I just mm-hmm. can't remember his name right now. Um, 
and it's an ongoing book featuring an Avengers team made up of artificial intelligences and Hank Pym. Mm. This led me to say on Twitter, I think Hank Pym is going to die in Age of Ultron and be replaced by a robot version of himself. I just want to say that again so that when it happens, I have two places where I have said it. So you can really say that you called it. Interesting. Well, do you know about the last page reveal of Age of Ultron number three? Yes. Okay. Um... For those, but don't don't worry. He should, he's in Avengers AI, Jeff. We'll see, and that's it. Just the fact that he's listed as being in Avengers AI, I was like, huh. So, huh. Like I'm almost like I feel like you would be almost better served keeping that piece of information. Yes, yes, I I think you would. So Mar- Marvel's tendency to just announce stuff mm-hmm. is kind of getting weird. <laughs> just me like it's like hey we've just shown this character at the end of age of ultron you don't know what's going on but <laughs> he's gonna be in a book that coming out afterwards so he'll be fine he's, he's like uh, really? okay. honestly you can't just say like this book is coming and it'll feature some characters and not give his lineup i'm supposed to be like look it's this guy you were worried about there exactly the upcoming series wonder man colon he's not dead and in fact now he has a dog yeah. Um, uh, we should point out Wonder Man is not the character we're talking about. Yes, I was trying to be clever. But... For spoiler phobes. <laughs> <laughs> or we could just spoil it, because by the time this comes out, it's two issues past. Yeah, it's true. Uh, not that it matters. It's it's basically uh, Vision appears to be a character on the last page of Age of Ultron 3 when Luke Cage takes uh, She-Hulk in to tr- basically under the... Uh, pretenses of selling her for protection um, and in fact trying to get e- intel about what's going on inside the Ultron complex. You you get more intel in issue 4, which I have been substantially spoiled for. Oh yeah? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, it's interesting. No one's coughed up an issue yet, so I'm like maybe get, I won't read it. it so. Give it time, Jeff. Yeah. Someone will. Someone will. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I'll be kind of uh, I don't know. Again, I'm, I'm sort of like Eh. Um, I I thought that last page reveal of the vision was kind of like, oh, this will be interesting. And yet I also had that moment of like, oh man, can they just never stop shitting on this guy? Like again, as somebody... well, I thought it was really funny because just the other week you were like, this Avengers Assemble Daniel is great. Yes, exactly, exactly. And a few other people picked it up and enjoyed it, and I'm like, yes, this is good. This is a good thing. And then seeing this, I'm like, man, oh man, it's. You know, it's kind of, it's one of those weird things. I will say this, whatever else is going on with Marvel, I never feel like there's, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. There might be the left hand doesn't really give a shit about the right hand, but, you know, but it's not like DC where it just seems like fucking chaos, you know? Here's the thing, though. The other thing of that is, when Marvel like come up with something for a character that I don't like mm-hmm. I also find myself not getting too bothered because I suspect it's going to be undone within three years well yeah it it does have a they, they, they're self-correcting courses although yeah yeah, I was going to start. Oh, what? what? I was going to start. What are you going to bitch on? Well, I read Guardians of the Galaxy 1 which in part because Adam Nave was kind of like man oh no did you read did, like did, oh, didn't people love it? Uh, I get the sense uh, Nave did not Love Guardians okay. of Galaxy. I'd, I'd... Yeah, I'll have to check in and see why. I think because he was probably a fan of what Abnett and Lanning did with uh, with 
the Guardians. And I'm kind of like, for myself, I, I don't feel like I have much of a horse in the race, per se. But, I don't know, I had a, we- I had a weird knee-jerk reaction to, like, when you were talking about stuff. I'm like, yeah, stuff that's going to get redone, like, undone. Like, there was just something about Guardians of the Galaxy, number one. Like, reading that was kind of a an impressive exercise of, like, you know... Okay, like, you know, sort of that, you know, sort of smart ass, like, well, when is, when in Age of Ultron is this taking place? Because, you know, Tony Stark is in space. Like, I don't even know if they've gotten to that storyline. Tony, Tony Stark is in space in Iron Man as well. Okay, did, did he finally get to space then? So it does. He, it is, he, he is, he is totally in space. Okay, well, there we go. It picks up with him in space. So at least there's that. It doesn't necessarily tie in with Age of Ultron, but the other no, take on... it ties It ties in with the Nets crossover, Jeff. <laughs> no, I'm not joking. They've announced it. <laughs> I, I'm being 100% serious. They've announced their next crossover. <laughs> it starts next month. I'm really, I'm really not making this up. <laughs> really? Oh my yes. god. Oh, this is the best. Okay, well, Infinity. so... Infinity is their next crossover. Oh, it is. I didn't know they were talking about it. I didn't realize it was a crossover. I thought it was like... Oh, it's a crossover. It's apparently going to have Fear Itself level crossovers, which, listeners, means around 80 crossovers. Wow. Yeah, I, 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 just... I, I went back and did the math because someone uh, on Tom Brevoort's page, Tom Brevoort's uh, Tumblr now, he's because he's given up his farm spring because farm spring's dead. Uh, farm spring's is... dead. Yeah, farm spring like closed. <laughs> really? Why? Because yeah. they finally realized there was going to be no way they could monetize it, and so they just gave up. Holy shit! Okay, are are the pages just disappeared or are they just? Not I updated? I honestly don't know. Because you had a little farm spring account, man. yeah, I, yeah, but yeah. No one ever used it, including me. Oh, I don't like, know. I used, it, I used it for like two weeks, and then I forgot about it. <laughs> well, and then you came back and used it for another two weeks, which was kind of awesome. Like, uh, I, anyway. Nonetheless, what I was going to say is... Um, yes. He's on Tumblr. Yeah, someone was like, why do you have more crossovers for Age of Ultron? Mm-hmm. And he was like, because you keep saying you don't want more crossovers. And then someone was like, yeah, but I mean, you should have... Because he said something like, you know, people were complaining we'd had too many crossovers with Avengers versus X-Men, and that was relatively few crossovers. Right. And someone was like, what do you mean relatively few? You had 48 crossovers for Avengers versus X-Men. Right. And he was like, yeah, but that is relatively few compared with other books. And people were like, really? So I went back and looked. Sure, yeah, Fear Itself was like 85 books. No, wait, Fear Itself is over 100. And uh, Civil War was 85. I think that's what it is. Oof. Really? What? Yeah. Wow. Like, it's crazy. You go back and look at it, and you're like, that's an amazing number of comics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Holy cow. Um, well, and of course, I guess that's the thing that, of course, is is hilarious. Because, of course, one person's going to be like, why aren't there more crossovers? And then someone, you know, him saying, like, because you told us you didn't want them. And it's like, okay, like, I don't think, you know, Wolverine Forever 85 was the guy who actually said, I want less crossovers. Yeah. Okay, so there were 118 tie-ins to Fear Itself. Mm-hmm. And that's before you get to the epilogues. There were 22 epilogues. Oh my god. Wow. Civil War had 87 tie-ins. And that's mm. before epilogues, and it's like 18 epilogues or something like that. Wow. And that's including the whole little frontline miniseries, too? Yeah, yeah. Whew. Wow. That is practically sleek. 
Oh, man. Whereas, like, Avengers vs. X-Men had 48, which, you know, in comparison to 118, is real is relatively few. Right, right. Absolutely. Like, it's a third. Right, it's a third of that. 48 extra books on top of things. Yeah, I feel like this is the part where um, I just wasn't made for these times is supposed to start playing in the background while we're talking, because I just... You, you, you can totally do that, because you edited this, Jeff. Yeah, but I'm I'm never a fan of putting in stuff that other people own, I guess. Are you going to start singing it? Because that would be perfect. We can probably I was, but I, I stopped. <laughs> um, Jeff, tell me about a comic you liked. Um... The fifth season of Mad Men was terrific. Um, I'm a comic. Well, you know, let's not split hairs here. You said like. I thought I would jump on that. Comic. Well, but what was more important, like or comic? Um, Okay, Uh, I liked. uh, Also, I haven't seen the fifth season of Mad Men yet, and I've already been entirely spoiled for it by listening to the Nerdist podcast about it. Oh shit! Um, It's you know, it was was a it was a podcast with the writing staff of Mad Men. Oh, talking man. about how they came up with it. So literally, they're like, yeah, and then this, and then, and then we're like, how are we going to get to this? And I'm listening going, oh, fuck, I've managed to be non-spoiled for a year. Well, I have to say, as someone who was non-spoiled except for a few little bits and pieces, like just little fragments of things um, from a year ago, watching it now because it's on Netflix, watch instantly, it is really extraordinarily good. Um, and honestly, I'm really what's that? I'm really looking forward to it. I think Mad Men's one of those things that I don't care about being spoiled because I think the craft will be there. Right. Well, the craft is there. The other thing that I think is actually really great about it is is that um, it did make me think of like kind of the way the comic books used to be for me in that it's it's the fifth season. So they move through a lot with these characters. You know a lot about them, and yet everything about them is really internally consistent, you know, and it's delightful. So there's actually in the fifth season, I'm not going to spoil it, but there's a scene between uh, Roger and Peggy Olsen that is the Thor versus Hulk of my heart. You know what I mean? Like, that was the best encounter Ever in a way that it was satisfying that goes all the way back to comic book superheroes in the sense of like, oh yeah, these two characters have never interacted, and then you get to see them, and it is phenomenally perfect. Um, so there's a lot of stuff in the fifth season of Mad Men that I adore, and again, I adore the things that I adore about it have so much to do with you have so much knowledge and investment of these characters that just one little line by them just one little throwaway line you realize can just like echo and reverberate across you know seasons this is is the second time in this podcast that I've convinced that you're sneaking in the conversations at Wired (laughs) I'm not joking Rachel Edison, Laura Hudson and I had exactly this conversation this morning from a slightly different angle but yeah that is really funny because um, uh, we were talking about spoilers and about jumping on points, mm-hmm. and we were basically asking, "Can you start watching Mad Men with season six? Mm, right, without having watched any of the the other seasons? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, you know, that's actually that's, such a good question. That's going to be a question that Rachel is going to answer next week. Oh, because she is. She's she, just going to jump she's in. Never seen it. She's going to watch the first episode and basically do a. Does this even make sense? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
You know, I'll be curious because I haven't seen the rest of season five, so I don't know how it ends or where it goes. Because at the beginning of season five, I kind of feel like you can pick up on stuff. There's stuff that doesn't necessarily gel. Oh, this, yeah. yeah, but but there's enough stuff like the you know there's I mean we're about five or six episodes in, and there was just been one episode uh, with Betty, uh, but it was really well done. Like, I really did kind of have that moment of, like... And, and in fact, it was one of those things where, like, afterwards, Edie and I were like, I'm not really sure that this character would have done this or that character would have been like that. Like, a little bit of their, like... I'm not sure that's consistent with the character over the years, but the overall effect of the issue... Uh, issue of the episode was just phenomenal. Um, you know? And it's... So this is another thing. Like, you know, I we're going to have to jump soon, but one of the things that I did want to talk about uh, at some point, if not this episode, then, then the next maybe, is kind of the, like, what do we read comics for? Because I do have a little bit of that, like, what the hell am I... do? What do I read comics for? And it really does have that weird... Like, there's part of me that is addicted to the continuity or the weird emotional investment that I have for the characters. And this is especially true of like the big two, which is companies. If you were, if you were here asking me that question, I would punch you in the arm, sir. (laughs) I hate questions like that. Why do you read comics for? Why do you read books? Why do you watch television? But sometimes it's a good question. I mean, you know, cause, but it's, but it's not like, like, why, why do I read comics? I read comics to be entertained. Sure. It's the same reason I read books. It's the same reason I watch television. Well, yes, but uh, let's put it this way. All things being equal, and it's not necessarily like they are, but it's kind of close. Why do I spend... Because here's another thing. I, For example, I enjoy reading books a lot, and I enjoy the movies a tremendous amount. I still spend more time every week reading comics than I do, say, watching movies. You know? And why is that? So to me, there is a little bit of a question of like, you know, they're all good, but there's there's a reason why we do more of one than we do of another, don't you think? Uh, I actually don't know. I mean, I I see significantly fewer movies mm-hmm. than than I would say even you. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but part of that is circumstance. Sort like it's it's faster for me to it's faster for me to read a comic right uh, than it's to to watch a movie right um, it's yeah you know it's it's easier mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know because I can read them digitally uh for, I would say I probably spend as much time reading prose as I do reading comics mm, interesting right which I definitely do not which is part of why I envy your high uh, word count uh, book count you know. Yeah, but I, I part of that is I, I read uh, trashy and fast reading. Well, dude, believe me, I do too. And, I, you know, it's been actually really enjoyable doing this 52 books in 52 weeks thing, although I'm right on the edge of totally blowing the two-book lead that I built up for myself for the last few months. Um, so <laughs> so I've got to read Longitude well, like a well, motherfucker in the next couple of days is what I'm saying. So. <laughs> Uh, I I like I my reading in March just died a death. Mm, well, you been... I normally do I, I yeah, but I normally do like six to eight books a month, and right. I read like four. Right. <laughs> you know, which is I'm like, what happened? What happened in the middle of this month? Right. 
Right. Well, I I have some theories. Uh and basically it sounds it sounds to me like you were just under a shit ton of like work and feedback and others and kind of catching up from other stuff. Anyway, for me. Oh, yeah. No, I I I, I <laughs> for you, Jeff. To return to my punchable thesis, I do think sometimes it's helpful to be like, well, so what is it like if someone were to ask me, you know, why? It's like I'm kind of like, well, there is like I said, there's the 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 arc of the continuity which matters to me you know the idea that this stuff oh, piles yeah, up totally. in a way yeah it's you know sort of outside the scope of what a lot of other literature had done and then there's a, a something where like Gary someone was asking Gary Groth actually like kind of like what is like what still keeps him in, interested in comics and what does he still like about comics and he's kind of like he he said something where he talked about being obsessed with the line you know that that so much of comics literally breaks down to the illustration of the line, you know, and he's like I, he's like I'm fascinated by the the idea that a cartoonist can make a single stroke, and what it reveals about them and their personality or their ideas. Like you can just spend you can look at a line from like Alex Toth or Charles Schultz or you know Jack Kirby, and it all looks different, even though it's still just the line and what 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 you can tell about the characters, like about the person in it, you know? And I was kind of like, you know, I mean, that's definitely, um, you know, a more cartoonist based definition of what's awesome about comics, but there's a lot to be said about that too, which is as incredibly inattentive as I am about art. There's still stuff times where I sit down and look at comics and be like, just like, Oh God, God damn. That's absolutely unbelievably Oh yeah, and there's, there's things that you there's things that you read because of the line and because of the art that you mm. wouldn't otherwise like. I I got through all of uh, Punk Rock Jesus, mm. which in terms of writing was a mess mm. because Sean Murphy's art was just amazing mm-hmm. and, and and really did like pull me through. Right, right. So, but yeah, in terms of story, it's it's like offensively bad. <laughs> That's a shame. But yeah, exactly. So you get that stuff where suddenly it just, you know, and of course if you get it combined then it becomes something kind of absolutely delightful. But I'm actually going to bring our podcast all the way back to start. Uh what was really extra sad for me about Infantino passing mm-hmm. uh was that I read Showcase Presents Flash Volume 4. Ooh. Which is the end of Infantino's first run. Mm. And then goes into Russ Andrew and Mike Esposito taking over. Mhm. I want to say it's maybe Esposito's first or second, uh, sorry, Andrew's first or second issue, mm-hmm. uh, is a Superman Flash race. Mm. And especially in black and white, that art is just drop dead spectacular. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there is, and it's not on model as such, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but the very last panel is just like going, ha 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 ha, while Superman and Flash are looking out at the reader, basically being like, who do you think won the race, reader? Wow. And the line work for the Flash in that mm-hmm. is so perfect to me mm-hmm. that it's like, I want that, just that Flash head, yeah. like, blown up and put in a gallery wall. Mm-hmm. There's and that's and you said that's Andrew and Esposito. You said yeah, right. Yeah. Russ, uh, Russ Andrew and Mike Esposito. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's it's just there was like I was it actually stopped me when I was reading it. Mm. There was something about that head that I was just like that is 
amazing. That's great. That it that is like my my ideal of a specific time of superheroes, I guess, mm-hmm. and, and of artwork. Right. And it's because there's something about the weights of the the various weights of the lines within the head mm-hmm. that really was just like man, that that is comics right there. That is like you know that is. 1960s illustration for superheroes. Right. right. That really just stopped me short. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's phenomenal stuff. That's... Ross, Ross Andrew is one of those completely like, and I was going to say unsung, but that's not true. But still, completely like undersung. Oh, he's undersung. Artists. Yeah, exactly. Because as that's you know, amazing. What's that? I was going to say. I said he's just fucking amazing. He is. He is. I mean, of course, you know, he's like my he's like my Spider Man artist. You know, because he's just yeah. Spider Man run is amazing. Uh, just yeah, exactly, astonishing. So it's amazing to me to see some of the other stuff. And just you talking about that, I'm like, oh man, maybe I'll have to try and get my hands on a copy of that showcase because that would be phenomenal. Um, yeah, it's like it's, it's like early Andrew, if that makes sense. Like it's not the same as his, his Spider Man stuff. Oh yeah. It's not the- so like the later stuff he did for DC, he did a lot of stuff like a lot of covers for DC in the early eighties with uh, Dick Giordano inks mm-hmm. that are up there with like Jose Luis Garcia Lopez for me. Yeah, yeah, just, I just can imagine. you know everything he's drawing, you're like, well, that's a poster. <laughs> <laughs> All the covers, you're like, well, that's just you know, that that is spectacular. That that is an iconic image right yeah. there. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, but so yeah, it's not the same exactly, but it's yeah. There's just something about that particular head at the end of that issue. Mm. So <laughs> it's flash. It's flash issue one seventy five. One seventy five. I'll have to look that up. I'm like yes, and so <laughs> and so. Once again, Graham and Jeff managed to be a microcosm of the comics industry by uh, singing a tribute to someone who's passed by talking about someone else's art. Uh, <laughs> I know it's terrible, isn't it? <laughs> it's fair. I mean, it really is. I think okay, that there's I, a thing that's I have in a that. question. Quickly, then, mm-hmm. your favorite Infantino? Uh, that is a good question. I'll, I'll... I don't need an issue number. I just like just a run because my favorite Infantino by far is Elongated Man. Okay, so I was going to say there. There's like the the things that I love most about Infantino are um, like top ten things, just in no special order. First and foremost, it's the panels with the pointy hands, which yes, are yes, just yes. absolutely one of the best things ever. Like that and I'm is. I'm so glad to see them doing that in Archer and Armstrong. Yeah, yeah. Just it's it's just it's one of those things that is brilliant, um, and and adds so much to it. In that regard, seeing his very like the sort of Infantino in his kind of golden age, the just the mixture of cl- like cleanliness with character that he's able to bring to like Flash to Longinated Man, even to um, that pre um, pre Denny O'Neill Batman stuff, you know, where suddenly it's you know it's kind of the pop stuff from the TV show. It's like riffing off the pop stuff, but like Infantino, like even when the stories are just kind of awful like infantino's work has such a clarity and a lightness to it that that is remarkable um then for me like you said his star wars work for one of the things when i was mentioning the things that stuck out with me is is like there's a panel 
where Darth Vader is has his lightsaber drawn and he is throttling a uh, rebel soldier on a distant planet. And he's just found out, I think, the name of the person, because this is set in this weird you know, pre-Empire Strikes Back thing where Vader's still trying to figure out, find the name of the Death Star pilot. Uh, the, the pilot who blew up the Death Star because he doesn't know it's Luke Skywalker. And it's kind of this secret. Anyway, he's on this rebel base, which is not the rebel base. And he is, again, his lightsaber's drawn. He's strangling somebody that he's holding off his, his feet. And I know that part of this is Dan Day's embellishment, but it is a beautiful embellishment with Infantino, is there's, in the foreground, there's this sort of vine with all these flowers, and the flowers are just beautifully drawn. And it's one of those things, it, 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 I've seen that image several times, and it never sunk in until I was looking at it in one of the Star Wars Omnibuy, just how fucking phenomenal that sort of death in life is, because someone, because Day took the time to actually draw the I feel like draw those flowers out because you don't see it happen in other issues where it's Infantino being inked by uh, Bob Viacek, uh mm-hmm. I think who who does a lot of his work so that always stuck with me weirdly enough the boobs Carmen the boobs that Carmen Infantino puts on women in like the late 70s when he's drawing like Spider Woman and Princess Leah and everybody like I remember reading I think it was an interview with John Byrne where he talked about how like Every all of Carmen Infantino's women have banana boobs, and I, they they have very small but very sharp boobs. Yeah, so it's kind of a weird like I just remember it's not I'm not usually the sort of person I'm not saying like that like turned my crank or something, but I always found myself paying attention to the boobs on Carmen Infantino women because they always somehow seemed so unique and but the same. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. No, so, no, totally. So I think. Yeah. Sorry, I no, no, no. I was going to say I was going to pass it off to you. How about how about I, yourself? I uh, well, Elongated Man is by far my favorite series. Mm-hmm. I think when he inked himself, he was spectacular. Uh, it's very funny you mentioned boobs because you just reminded me. Uh, he does something with Iris West's hair mm-hmm. in the in his final issues, where he gets like weirdly stylistic that I love, and I'm like, I want to see people with that hair. Oh yeah, there's something absolutely spectacular about that hair. Right, right. Um, yeah, I, I just his inking. It really was when he inked himself. Mm-hmm. He became like this weirdly he overworked and overworried lines mm-hmm. in such an attractive way to me. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, his later work, like the, the trial of the Flash, work I adore in in black and white because it's so strangely the the it, because it's almost graphophilic in the way that the lines get things just get so over rendered and are so angular like he's just yes yeah and i just find that stunning in a way that um that very few artists really are in a way and it and it's again like you said it's that thing that as a kid i did not like it and now of course as an adult i'm like this is fucking great what's really interesting to me is i feel that we've had artists who have taken up a lot of artists who have taken up kirby a lot of artists who have taken up Dicto, uh, Dicto. A lot of artists who have taken up Toth. I've not really seen anyone who's taken up Carmen Infantino. Hmm. Interesting. Like, where, where's the Infantino influence? And it, it's kind of surprising to me. Like, hmm. you've even had a Cooper influence. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Cooper's line work is incredibly distinctive. Mm-hmm. But you can definitely point to artists. I mean, Guillaume Marsh, I think, has, has a really Cuberty line. Right. Um, but I can't think of anyone who's taken up Infantino. 
it's interesting because I almost feel like the answer is going to be like from some of the black and white indie guys who might have taken stuff from his final period and then with his earlier period I just don't know enough because I do feel like Infantino's work his early period like everything that everyone sort of liked about it well everything not really because there's the lightness I think but like Neil Adams just really sort of took all the, you know what I mean sort of stole all that thunder I feel and that's kind of a that's kind of a shame you know Neil Adams you destroyed comic art <laughs> Well, I mean, the thing... I, I, I kind of think that a lot, I have to say. Well, I'm, but... I'm not a fan of Neil Adams' uh, photorealism, and it always kind of upsets me that that became, like, the norm, that Neil Adams was so successful. Oh, that he was so successful. I agree, except for the fact that, that you get the dudes who, you know, I, I do feel like you can't... Like, Jim Aparo, to me, out Neil Adams, Neil Adams. You know what I mean? Like, he just because he drew that much more, he stayed in comics that much longer. And so, for me, I'm like, yeah, you can't really... I'm like, I don't know if we really would have had Aparo if we didn't have Adams. And, of course, what Aparo goes on to do is he goes back in and sort of moves things back closer to, like, Toth and other characters. Yeah. You know, I, I, yes. I don't know. I, I have a... I have a love-hate relationship with Adams, which is mostly hate. <laughs> right. Well, I totally get it. But also, like, uh, Cockrum. You know, I feel like Dave Cockrum, like, at his best when I adored him, it's he and, like, Mike Grell, and there's a bunch of other dudes who sort of took Adams' sort of love what, what's, of What's design. funny is, like, I, I, I dislike Grell's art. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, didn't, I like Cockrum a lot as a designer, but I don't particularly like his, his line work. Oh, interesting. I adore his line work on the first run of Uncanny. Um, I haven't really... And then, and then we try and pretend about the second run of Uncanny. We right. just smile politely. Well, yeah, exactly. But, you know, so... Uh, and you still see... I still see some stuff where I'm just like, oh, man, that's phenomenal work. But it's true that a lot of it really does come out in design or pinups or you know, the occasional bit or piece. I feel that Cockrum, of course, suffered horribly under that period of Shooter's Marvel, I'm assuming, you know, is why his work was so terrible. I also think he suffered horribly from Burns' success on the book. Yeah. I think, I think Burns' legacy kind of, pun, burned him. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but I, I don't think it did him any favors at all. And it's such a shame. He came back on the title that he co-created. Yeah. And... People are kind of like, oh, but you're not as glossy and you're not as slick. Well, and it was like, yeah, but that's not his, what he's, I don't know, I feel like he, he was pushed in directions that was not fair to what his natural inclination was. Well, but I think his inc inclinations would have actually been to be glossy. I mean, he's pretty goddamn glossy when he leaves Uncanny. Yeah, but not, yeah, but not the same as, not in a uh, burn way. Well, not in a, not in a burn way, but... Burn is like weirdly bubbly, slick, glossy. I, I don't know. Burn, Burn's art, especially when he had Terry Austin, is like, I don't know. Burn's art is amazingly dated to me. Mm -hmm. Like, it's it's very 1980s. I, I look at that art and I'm always like, oh, it's the 80s, in a way that I can't explain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's very weirdly the opposite of Infantina's Angular. Yeah, no, agreed, agreed. I, I think, I, I mean, I love Burn. I, it's just, it's one of those weird things of like when I was a kid reading those issues when they came out, 
Uh, and I, I was adoring Burns' work over on Iron Fist at the time. Like, I was like, oh, this is, like, it actually was still a come down to me that he started working on Uncanny and that Cockrum left. And then, of course, by the end, Burn not only has hit his stride, but basically rebuilds the book in his image, you know, pun intended or not, I guess. And so when Cockrum walks back into it, he's hobbled by the fact that it's, that the book has been remade by Byrne and Cockrum doesn't quite fit. But also I would swear to God that, that Shooter is leaning on people to, you know, basically to do a lot of shitty storytelling, you know, I mean, good storytelling in that like, oh, you see all the characters and they're in medium shots and they're all talking to each other. So you know who they are. But like, was Joe Rubenstein inking Cockrum during that? Um, for for at least part of it. I yeah. think Rob thinks some for part of it as well. Right. And McLeod I feel like at least draws in some of the um some of the sweep in Cockrum's work. But Rubenstein pretty much kind of rubs it out. So there's so much that's so pedestrian under Cockrum, which is a shame because he's not, you know, given his own druthers, like you see him on the Futurians and stuff like that. And he's kind of he's in that Neil Adams like sensual line hysterical overacting type thing that, you know, Byrne actually moved his characters into a realm of the X-Men into a realm of underacting, like understatement that actually served them really well because everything was so conflated. Um, and yeah, so I think by the time Cockrum comes back with Claremont, it's a mess. I could probably argue this and still not convince you for forever, but there are things... <laughs> There's stuff that, because I'm sort of like, oh, and remember when he did that, just that one issue of John Carter of Mars, and it looked beautiful, and then it all just kind of went to hell after that. And then, then it all went wrong. Yeah. I, I feel that could be the Cockrum story. Remember when he was great, and then he wasn't? Well, but no, but in that case, that was Cockrum. I think Cockrum left. He didn't really do one more than one issue. But I do feel that Cockrum was, like, Cockrum as the guy who... Didn't Cockrum leave X-Men to do John Carter? Um, I th- want to say that he did. I mean, he was really missing deadlines and burning out on X-Men, and a lot of people thought it might have been because of the team book. I don't really remember, because there's the point where he... I think that might have been why he left for the first time, or it might have been just that he was burnt out. He went back and did John Carter, and it took him so long to do that first issue that they... I don't think they, they had him back. Wrong. Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, really early on, it moves on to being Gil Kane inked by uh, Rudy Nibres, I want to say. Um, yes, and, which is a terrible combination. Yeah, which is just like, ugh, I see it what they thought no they would be well, doing. Yeah. Exactly, it, but it undercuts everything. Then, of course, Cockrum ends up uh, a little while later. He, he, You know, he's on the fringes of things. He's kind of helping to he redesign Miss Marvel, and I think redrew like drew an issue right wasn't it with the new costume yeah, that was... i want to say i want to say that he's he draws the first appearance uh yeah of the new costume of yeah. the new costume exactly yeah. so he draws that and then you know a few other bits and pieces comes back to x-men and then leaves that to do the futurians um as i recall he does the futurians he's got the nightcrawler miniseries in the middle of that um and yeah he just Everywhere where he steps after a certain point, it's never... He's no longer in the right place at the right time. And then, you know, because the industry... Because the industry does what it does to people, he basically ends up dying absurdly young and broke, uh, you know, uh, in a trailer. 
and would have received no health care benefits at all if it wasn't for the fact that he had been in the Navy, and so he gets the minimum amount of VA care, basically. Comics, everyone. Yeah, comics, everyone. Exactly. So, uh, <laughs> so on that note, indeed, we should we should actually go, right? We we should. Hey, everyone, that was our upbeat episode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we tried. We tried so hard. Kind of tried. What's that? Uh, we kind of tried. We sort of tried. You know what? I think it's only fair. I think, you know, uh, part of me is like sort of like, I feel like we should have extra spoilers for the people who don't like hearing us talk about feedback just because we did a chunk of that. But you know, there's also good stuff here. We'll be back next week with more. Um, I, let's put it this way. I've decided that I'm going to make a point to talk about more things that I'm positive about, like Mad Men, whether it necessarily ties into comics or not. So that's, that's my I'm little guarantee. I'm just going to try and trip Jeff up wherever possible. <laughs> That's my pledge to you, listeners. <laughs> you can bank on it. Uh, okay, well, so I guess we will see you all uh, next week. And next time we do a skip week, we'll actually try and remember to tell you, as opposed to both of us forgetting. Ah, yeah. Oh, sorry, everyone. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't even, like, I, I literally didn't think about it. <laughs> I, I have to admit, I thought about it, but I didn't quite know what to say, because I was just kind of like, uh, I felt like I'd written one recently. I was kind of like, Oh, but we sort of mentioned it at the end, and people will know. And then we actually had people in the comments and on Twitter going like, "What's the scoop?" So yeah, that's our other pledge: is when, when there's skip weeks, you, we're, we're going to tell you when we're doing a skip week, yeah. which is uh, in three weeks from now. That's right. We, we can tell you right now we're doing a skip week in three weeks from now. Yeah, that's right. Is it three weeks? It is three weeks. Literally. Uh, and then we're doing a skip week another two weeks after that, I think. Yeah, two or three weeks after that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that that's so you you could mark that in your calendar right now or whatnot. Yes, because we certainly did. So I was, yeah, sure we did. <laughs> I did, didn't you? <laughs> We've been just before. You think I keep a calendar? Really? I really kind of thought you did. I don't know why. I you know. Uh, yeah. God bless you for your optimism. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Uh, Jeff and I may be sarcastic and everything, but we really do appreciate it. Absolutely. Bye! Yes. Perfect. Perfect.